What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Corlys of House Valerian, Lord of the Tides and Master of Driftmark, renowned in song and story as the Sea Snake, and surely one of the most extraordinary figures of the age. A noble house with a storied Valyrian lineage, the Valerians had come to Westeros even before the Targaryens, if their family histories can be believed, settling in the gullet on the low-lying and fertile island of Driftmark, so named for the driftwood that the tides brought daily to its shores, rather than its stony, smoking neighbor, Dragonstone. Though never dragon riders, the Valerians had for centuries remained the oldest and closest allies of the Targaryens. Their sea was their element. Or the sea was their element, not the sky. No, it's During, their sea. It's their sea. Yeah, it kind of was their sea. <laughs> During the conquest, it was Valerian ships that carried Aegon soldiers across Blackwater Bay, and then later formed the greater part of the royal fleet. So yeah, it was their sea. Throughout the first century of Targaryen rule, so many lords of the tide served on the small council as master of ships that the office was widely seen as almost hereditary. Yet even with such forebears, Corlys Valerian was a man apart, a man as brilliant as he was restless, as adventurous as he was ambitious. It was traditional for the sons of the seahorse, the sigil of House Valerian, to be given a taste of a seafarer's life when young, but no Valerian before or since ever took to shipboard life as eagerly as the boy who would become the sea snake. Mm -hmm. uh, super chat right off the bat from Tommy Pappas. Thanks, Tommy. Uh, no question attached, but thanks for the support. We'll be seeing him in about three weeks. That's right. Seeing him at Ice Firecon and a lot of you other fine people will be seeing there as well. And we're excited for that. Now, the sea steak is really popular. Uh, Fire and Blood is key to that, but the world of Ice and Fire is where we got our early introduction to him. And it's frankly where we get more of the information about the places he traveled to. So the Fire and Blood gives more information about him, but World of Ice and Fire gives more information about the places he's been. And that is our focus. So this is kind of a split Fire and Blood, World of Ice and Fire episode, I guess you could say. But it's inspired by the publication of Fire and Blood. So it's under that title. Uh, he does appear in the, in the Princess and the Queen and the Rogue Prince as well, because he's a big player in the Dance of the Dragons. Speaking of the Dance of the Dragons, if we hadn't uh, had to move the stream to this week, if we had finished it last week, if the internet had cooperated, mm -hmm. we would probably be recording our Dance of the Dragons collab with Radio Astros right now. Mm -hmm. But instead, that'll start tomorrow. So not a big difference. But that is our way of saying that the first episode in that series has been written. And it is well we, where we will cover the latter half of the Sea Snake's life, whereas this is going to be focused on his early life and his voyages which is uh, very, very different than his life after his voyages, which contained all the politics and war. We're going to also talk about um, his uh, involvement in the Hour of the Wolf and the Regency and all that. Not just the war, but the aftermath. That'll be a big part of our dance coverage as well. So, uh, welcome back, Ashea. Good to see you. Thank you. <laughs> 
And we have our also returning guest who was here last week and was part of our false start. So welcome back to hopefully a complete stream this time, uh, at least free of of uh, drops and such. LML, welcome back, buddy. Well, I've thrown at least 12 people into the sea after cutting their throats, so hopefully the storm god is appeased, <laughs> or the drown god, or whatever gods uh, were disturbing us. But no, I am coming with my, uh, my Blackwater Bay t-shirt. Uh, which nice. which does have a kind of sea dragon. It's a Chinese dragon. This is the Chinese New Year uh, Warriors shirt here. So this is on theme as Very I could cool. get for you guys. But thanks for having me back. Looks like we've got a strong start today. No shaky stream. No uh, intermittent stream. No. You know. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I have to point out something that I never noticed, despite streaming with LML for a long time, that he stands during his streams. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. I only know this from know. being there and being on one of his streams at his house. And you know, did you he stand? Was I believe I sat on a stool. Oh, I don't okay. think I. It was a really short episode. It was only like a five minute update thing. So, or no, it was it was an hour. Minute? I guess it was, it was an hour, but that's short. It was an hour. Yeah. Okay. I think you're a secret Mormont. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a big, uh, big fan of the standing desk. Um, I, when I sit, I hunch, and about half an hour, my shoulders hurt. So uh, I've got into the standing desk thing, and that's how I roll. So. Thanks, everybody, for cool. joining on the stream. I see the chat's already active, and everybody's uh, was fired up last week. And, you know, thanks for bearing with us. We did what we could, but it's fun to be back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> definitely, definitely. As far as our shirts go, Shay is rocking Broad City. Yeah, Pod City. Pod City, really. Well, cats, they had their series finale last week. That's also, right. it's a nice color that fits with House Valerian. And I've got Miskatonic University. I didn't have a Valerian shirt. I don't own any seahorse shirts, but... A lot of the places the sea snake went to are Lovecraft inspired, and Miskatonic University is straight from Lovecraft. So, if you didn't get the reference, well, now you do. We've also got another super chat from Dark Mother for six six six. Big surprise there. <laughs> That's a popular number these days. Love me some mythical astronomy. That's right. So do we all. So do we all. Okay. Well, our our other guest who isn't present in person but whose presence in this episode is going to be large is uh our artist friend Drafturgy, who created a lot of art just for this episode and a lot of these pieces are going to be available for sale yeah like this one he did of corlys and rainies uh along with Maylis, the red queen of course um and a little bit about Drafter G. You might have seen him on Twitter or something like that. Uh, he does concept and fantasy illustration based out of L.A. He does some illustration work part-time. And um, lately, he's been switching to this cool water-based media and airbrush acrylics, which later on in the episode will have a process video for you of that, which is which is very cool. And he originally entered the fandom because of the show, but the thing that I think is particularly cool about him is that um, he's very into the book lore and tries to do these illustrations according to the book descriptions, and you can really see there's a unique quality to it, and he does a lot of references and stuff like that. He's got 3D models and uh, etc. Yeah. So we reached out to him for this episode because it's just this very real and evocative style, as you can see here on the screen. And so you can find him on Twitter at Draftergy, that's D-R-A-F-T, 
U-R-G-Y, and also on Instagram, at Drafter-G. And he's going to have links set up on his website for prints for sale, so you can get this awesome Corlys and Rainey's print. And yeah. you'll see some very cool pieces throughout the rest of the episode. Yeah, please, so please check his website out, support his work. We love to support um, artists in this community, and we uh, hope you all decide to support him as well. And yes, I think you're going to love what we've got uh, of his art in this episode. We also have, because we're going to so many cool places that the sea snake went to, we are also going to have a lot of Michael Clarfeld map shots. So with that in mind, we I very frequently point out to our podcast-only listeners that there are ways to see these images. One of them is to use the Acast podcast player. It's free. There's no ads or anything. We don't get any money from it. It's just a good thing to have because it allows you to see these images in the audio podcast you can scroll through them. You can see them. They're just nice, nicely presented. So it's a good way to get some images on your phone. Uh, but also, we're going to post these in um, a couple places online as well. Some links and the uh, the map shots as well. So lots of ways to see these, see this art. And of course, you can always check out this video uh, if you're <laughs> listening afterwards. If you're not catching the live stream. So lots of ways to keep up with that. Let's give some uh, quick shout outs to uh, people who make the show possible, and then we'll get started. We have uh, new art to feature as well, uh, coming for our dragon uh, Talarius, but we have new art today for Atroxus, who is, of course, the dragon of Robert IV of House Ardeacor, who is burned king of Blazewater Bay. And this is the new art, a black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. You know, I've forgotten, which artist is that? Azani. Azani, very cool. the left bottom corner. That's right. Yeah, it does say that, doesn't it? Yeah, Azani has done other dragon art for us as well. So the style is becoming rapidly familiar to uh, History of Westeros fans if they weren't already. And, of course, we also have Talanis the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. New art on the way for him shortly as well. Can't wait to debut that. Mm. I was just, real quick, I was going to say the blue and black one is like a shade of the evening dragon a little bit. Yeah, yeah it's really cool, huh? kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, I'm still thinking of the expanse. I'm like, it's a proto-molecule dragon. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like a white dragon. <laughs> I have a weird dragon amongst my patrons. So. Oh, oh, that's cool. cool. That's oh. Melanie Lot 7. Mm. Oh, right on. Mm. Also, of course, a shout out to some a man who does not fear dragons of any size, Jeff Gnarly the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' first sword. All right. That is it for the announcements. Let's get right to it. Um, we did some uh, history of House Valerian in the Oakenfist episode, so we're not going to go, we're not going to retread that. But there are a few things we didn't talk about that bear mention here that are a little more relevant to Corlys than they were to Alan. And that is this whole bit that was touched on in the opening quote about how the Master of Ships uh, office is almost hereditary. Look at how it breaks down. That's almost an understatement of the early days of, of Master of Ships. The first Master of Ships was Damon, uh, Damon Valerian, followed by Athan, who was the son of Damon, followed by Damon, who was the <laughs> son of Athan, and he was promoted to hand. And so Manfred Redwine became Master of Ships. Uh, after Damon was promoted to hand. And then we get Sea Snake. And here's another piece of uh, another art another piece of art from Drafter G. You got the 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 black and white and the color. It's very cool. I love the uh, the horizon back there. He looks like a proper sailor. A little bit of a Captain Morgan feel there. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Sea Snake himself is, is Master Ships, followed by Oaken Fist for Dare on the first. Well, not followed by Oaken Fist. There's maybe some in between that we're not clear on, but I believe that Oaken Fist may have been next. And then in between all that, we have nothing. We don't know who the Master Ships were from all the way from Dare on the first all the way to Ares the second. So from about 140-ish, 150-ish, all the way to 260-something. We don't know who the uh, the Masters of Ships were. So there could have been more Valerians in there for all we know. But all we know is the last one for the Targaryens was also a Valerian. Uh, he was a real crappy guy. Though. This Lucerius Valerian was like agreeing with Ares on everything. He's like, yeah, you want to burn people? Yeah, let's do that. You want to cut people's heads off for very minor things? Yeah, do it. Do it. So, mm-hmm. eh. <laughs> He's uh, not... Um, not someone that I think Corley's Valerian, our subject today, would be proud of. Uh, early in his life, he was born in um, 53 IC, which is one year before Elissa Farman ran off with the dragon. You're saying early in his life he was born. <laughs> That's usually when people are born, right? <laughs> yeah. People are usually not born late in their lives. <laughs> in fact, when they are born late in lives, it's, it's, it's really quite a story. It's, it's really <laughs> noticeable. So he's normal that he was born at age zero. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Nothing unusual at that. Uh, no strange Targaryen birth defects or anything like that, even though his name is the Sea Snake. Uh, so he would have been about two when the Sun Chaser was completed and about three when her voyage to the West began. So he would have grown up hearing about her. You know, in, in Mariner circles, I would have to imagine she was just... A legend. A le- yeah, like things people would talk about her a lot. And... Um, this is also one year before Damon, as in the Damon who became master of ships and then Hand, uh, retired. Also one year before Jocelyn Baratheon was born. And despite Jocelyn Baratheon being younger, she would eventually be his mother-in-law <laughs> <laughs> and his cousin. Because, you know, that's how these upper nobility things work out. We need Elena to describe all this for us, I think. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that, LML? What do you think it would be like to be growing up as like a mariner with, with this incredible figure who had just lived in the prior generation, plus you come from this tradition of like amazing mariners? It must have been, must have been kind of a great environment for him. Well, I thought you were going to ask me about coming from a family where the Family tree goes sort of backwards and up and crosswise. But <laughs> well, you can mention that too. That's a really I topic as well. Yeah, I wouldn't know anything about that. Um, I do come from a long line of gardeners myself, though. Both my father and grandfather are gardeners, oh, and uh, really, I was, okay. of course, for a time a gardener. Um, so it wasn't really a lot of pressure, though, on my shoulders. Uh, it wasn't quite that much greatness uh, compared to the the sea snake. But yeah, you know, that kind of pressure can either crush somebody or can you know propel you to great heights and so obviously our young sea snake was determined to i mean right from a young age he was pushing the envelope constantly so he's just one of those people that was constantly looking for new horizons looking to sail farther and you know longer and all that stuff so that's that's just him that's a really good point about the pressure of of past generations. It's it's a thing that people can either wilt under or really rise to. And for these nobles, it's it's usually it's like a meat grinder. They 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 have to measure up, or they just you know it's it's, it's a whole other thing. And he clearly, like you said, is clearly in the mold of this was a good thing for him. He was inspired, and uh, he followed in his family's footsteps. Um, and then and not only followed in his footsteps, but just set new 
uh, standards for a lot of this. He's named for Coralise Valarian, the first Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. So talk about a name that carries weight. There were probably some Coralises before that who were also a big deal. It seems like maybe Coralise was maybe a common house name, although we don't know of any Coralises after him. But, of course, we don't necessarily have a lot of Valerian history yeah. to go by. yeah. You gotta figure there'd be more Corlys, right? You would like, think, but there's other one. You would think there'd be more Alisands in the Targaryen. You know, there's a million names like that that you might think. Good point. But, you know, they <laughs> did it so well that no one was willing to. Yeah, they're just like no one is worthy of this name. We're retiring it, like retiring, yeah, a, a, retiring number, a jersey it, exactly. number for a, a sports team. <laughs> his father. We don't know what his father's name was, but we have it narrowed down to three. It was either Corwin, Victor, or Jorgen, which are kind of strange names to me. Victor and Jorgen don't really seem like. Valarian names to me, and Corwin's pretty similar to Corlys. It wouldn't be. What about a Corful instead of Corless? Cor <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, Corlys, or it could be like Cormir or Cor Pentos. Or I apologize, everyone. I apologize. You got me started. Yeah. <laughs> you got me started on that. Uh, the eldest of those three, whichever of those three was the eldest, we don't know which it was, but that one was Corlys's father, because we know that Corlys was the son of. Damon's his grandfather Damon's eldest I'm son. I'm gonna guess his father was Corwin. Just it just makes more sense to me. Yeah, I kind of lean that way too. I also <laughs> like that name the best. Yeah. Jorgen's kind of a strange. It's a strange name. It's like Germanic, which is kind of a strange name for a Valarian to have. And and Victor is just that's just not Westerosi until this book. There are two Victors in this book. I don't think there was a Victor before Fire and Blood. Anyway, so one of those three died in to the Shivers. The second of those three, so his his uncle, and then the other two, meaning his father and the other uncle, all died before Damon. So they all, so Damon, grandfather Damon, outlasted all three of his sons, which is how the title passed straight to Corlys. Um, Damon sounds like a pretty impressive guy. He lived to be like eighty eight, which is older than the Sea Snake, who lived a long time. And uh, oh, Nina Friel says there's a Victor Tyrell. Yes. I guess I did miss a Victor. Okay, well, my bad, my bad. Oh, Good so catch. Nina's excellent at catching my mistakes. Some other Vic names. <laughs> Vic name, Victoria, yeah. Victorian. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a little similar, at least. Um, and uh, he also had at least three of his four aunts had died um, before he inherited as well. So it's possible his father died young as well, uh, which all we know is that it wasn't from the Shivers. Uh, he may have also been in Pentos, Corlys himself, because Corlys was uh, in Pentos when the Shivers happened. Because he did take a voyage there when he was really young. So he may have been away from it when all that happened. That's just kind of interesting. This is Because if you think back also, the Shivers was blamed on the Pentashi. This is when Rigo Draz was murdered in the streets for being a Pentashi. And um, so this is kind of, you wonder if what people were saying in Pentos about Westeros blaming Pentos and all that. And if Sea Snake was on the other side of that. But he was very young for all this. you have any thoughts on that, LML? It's kind of a... Kind of an under under the radar incident, the uh, the his location during uh, this disease. Uh, no, it just seems like Martin is sort of setting things up for there to be a little bit of a power vacuum for him to step into. That, that's what I'm observing. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because he does. You're right. He takes over after his voyages. When after all, it doesn't seem like he would be. Seems like he would have been pretty far down the line of succession, even though he was in the direct line. Uh, because his grandfather lived so long. And the, the fact that his grandfather lived so long is 
why he was able to go on all these voyages. And like you said, then once he's done with all the voyages, the things kind of cleared out for him and he's basically just steps into his lordship. Yeah, and I think that's so, what uh, makes him an interesting character is because he's not just uh, a Magellan, you know, type of explorer. He's also actually turns to politics and he doesn't just explore but brings great wealth back to his house as we'll discuss and makes his house a, a great power and then turns to politics and ages gracefully and remains a player until he's very old so it's just a lot of phases in his life so much so that you can't even do it all in one live stream so he's a very dynamic <laughs> figure it's true. This always happens when we have guys, characters, not guys, guys or girls yes. that, live, that live to be more than 40 or 50. It's like, oh, that's yeah, two episodes. Nymeria. <laughs> yeah, Nymeria. Yeah, is three. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, speaking of Nymeria, we have our episode voting in progress right now. We're about to wrap it up. So if you are a $12 or more patron, make sure you get your vote in. Looks like uh, Lomas Longstrider is going to win. Speaking All these of adventurers, uh, we did Alyssa Farman and Oakenfist. The explorers are very popular. And Nymeria. Yeah, really, uh, really. We see where the uh, how well the world building type episodes do. <laughs> We're certainly big fans of them. Um, so we know that Lord Damon, Grandpa Damon, died uh, when. He was uh, 88, like I said, but we don't know when he was 88. It was sometime between the years 77 and 90, kind of a wide range. So, yeah, so this is, like I said, he's free to do all this exploring because his grandpa is such a strong ruler and held the, you know, the powerful house in line for so long. And, you know, they're such a well-regarded house, so powerful at this time. It's easy to to forget compared to what they are now to what they were then, which is back, back right now. They're not that powerful at all. They're still around. They're with Stannis. But the sea snake took them from one of the most powerful houses in Westeros to the most powerful house in Westeros uh, in just because of his exploring in large part, which is so cool. Like he just got so much wealth from exploring, which is very different than what we see from some of these other explorers who didn't necessarily come back with a lot of wealth. Some of them did. Euron did. Oakenfist sort of did. But Alyssa Farman, well, she didn't come back. <laughs> and uh, Lomas Longstrider... He was a scribe, you know. He he didn't ha- he wasn't a noble that had all these means to buy a bunch of goods and bring them back and make a lot of profit from them. So that's another thing we're going to talk about during this. Is is Corley's had some advantages? Um, anyway, so but and part of that leads to him being able to go farther. This is one of the reasons he's able to go to all these other places is because he comes from this powerful house. Um, he has the means to do it. That's a big part of it. That's something that gets lost in the shuffle. Uh, Alyssa Farman came from a minor house. She's a noble, but she was a fugitive <laughs> when she ran off, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Oakenfist was also from the same house, but he was bastard-born, which and and he didn't quite have the same wealth. So a lot of different stuff there. A lot of um, a lot of different factors that that make mm-hmm. all this uh, interesting. But even with all that, Sea Snake, he didn't. Uh, he was no slacker, despite mm-hmm. his advantages. He went farther than Lomas did. Uh, we think he went farther than Euron did. We we think. You know, I want to mention, we touched on it in our, you know, stream that never was last week, <laughs> I guess. That's a good title for it. Yeah. Um, which was the mention of there being songs written about Coralise. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I really would like to challenge someone to write a sea snake. A sea snake. <laughs> yeah, LML, you up for writing some sea snake songs? Or yeah. uh, you know that I am. 
<laughs> that's what we need that's cool yeah that is a good that was a good catch that it says he's a a, a figure of song and story like yeah what songs because we were yeah. talking about how blood raven arrived on the wall it was probably maybe the only person who had a song written about him before he got to the wall you know if you count danny flint that was after the fact in the ocean the sea snake sleeps tonight <laughs> yep just like that yeah. see it just it comes out. on demand <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but no, seriously, like you were saying, when you compare him to Euron, um, Euron takes a long voyage, you know, farther than anyone has gone in a long time, comes back with wealth, and he uses it to try to uh, take power. He, he does it a little differently because he's trying to do it really fast, whereas Corlys Valerion, you know, gradually built up his wealth, and then on his last voyage to Karth, you know, as we'll talk about, he took home a big haul and set himself up and then sort of settled down to being a politician. But it's interesting how, um, you know, if you can either just be an explorer or you can sort of use those riches to, to parlay that into grabbing power. And Euron does it in a slightly different fashion. That's very true. It's interesting to compare Euron to the sea snake in that way. I didn't have great, you know, we didn't have like great sea snake parallels we do have one in this episode provided to us by a friend but uh there might be if we really dig into sea snake euron obviously the personalities are pretty different but there's probably a, a lot more there than we may have uh, may, may have realized at first because of that you know using this the exploration to take power that's a really uh pretty poignant one right there the depth of their exploration is really quite substantial Super chat from Sean Schilling. Do we think the sea snake ever came across a kraken? How would they fight such a beast? It seems likely they had, they would have come across a kraken a few times, if not more, or um, given the vast amount of exploring he did. How do you fight such a thing? You don't. I don't think you just escape you hopefully just get away you, you if you're if you're if there's like five ships you hope it grabs one of the other ones <laughs> well let's put it this way we don't we don't ever hear about him encountering a kraken so if they did it didn't pull down any of the main ships or you know leave a big enough impression but i think encounters with krakens are probably fairly rare you know yes i agree they, they're probably pretty rare we did hear now when you mentioned his voyage to karth he did uh, go there in one ship, buy 20 more ships once he was there, fill them all up and go back, which is a perfect example of how who else could do that? You need an insane amount of wealth to do that, <laughs> to buy 20 ships and then fill it up with trade goods. Whoa. But it's said that four, uh, six of those ships didn't make it back. So, you know, it's more likely that storms or something took them out. But maybe a Kraken was responsible for one or two of those six missing ones. I put a related comment there for you, Aziz, that I just thought was funny. You did? Oh, okay. Yes, from Thomas Pappas. It says, or he says, I was watching a documentary on early sea travel and turns out a lot of krakens, quote, unquote, were actually just whale penises sticking out of the water that appear like tentacles. I saw that same article and I laughed out loud. No. Yeah, apparently, I don't know. It makes me laugh. Look at, you got to look, man. Whale penises sticking no, out of the water. No, I don't really have big. to look at whale penises at all. I can leave them alone in the privacy of their own hindquarters. <laughs> well said. Well said. Um, so... Maybe the sea snake encountered some whale penis of his own. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Boy. How do seahorses react to that? Yeah. That didn't take long. We're not even half an hour into this. <laughs> I haven't even made sea snake jokes yet, and you're talking about whale penis. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. 
<laughs> we got to get started. We got to get it going quickly or, you know, it'll take too long. So. <clears throat> That's what she said? <laughs> that is what she said. That's what she, she being a, a female whale. <laughs> a fee whale? Is that what they're mm. called? Um, okay, so early voyaging for him, he, he in between his great voyages and that first voyage to Pentos that we mentioned when he was six, when the shivers was was raging, it says, thereafter he made such voyages every year. So he was sailing like a, well, like a sailor. Uh, and it says, not, here's a quote, not, nor did he travel as a passenger. He climbed masts, tied knots, scrubbed decks, pulled oars, caulked leaks, raised and lowered sails, manned the crow's nest, learned to navigate and steer. His captain said they had never seen such a natural sailor. At age 16, he became a captain himself, taking a fishing boat called the Cod Queen from Driftmark to Dragonstone and back, circa 70 AC. This sounds a lot like what was said about Alyssa Farman, right? Like, she just took to it naturally. She was climbing the ropes, doing... I mean, it's almost identical. So, it, it just goes to show that he was just took to it like a, like it was... No matter how much you work at it, you need that natural talent. <laughs> <laughs> you need that natural talent. You need to be born into a seafaring house with lots of money. Yeah, lots of money, yes. <laughs> that's the best way to become a sailor. Yeah, that's why Leon Stark's such a good well, I, horse On a serious woman. note, I do like how George incorporates this idea that when somebody is in the right situation where they can follow their passion, that's when they really, really excel. And you see yeah, both yeah. people that are like stuck in places that aren't conducive for them. And you see people in a good situation. And the sea snake is one of those examples of like, he found his way early to his calling and, and excelled because of that. Yeah. Just kind of those like a, when you hear stories about that in real life, about people that are kind of born into something they love, it's just it kind of makes you feel good. <laughs> it's like, it's like one of those feel good stories. Like, yeah, there is some good in the world, that kind of thing. Um, so around this time, the, the Valarians, of course, like we said, were still kind of the number one house. They weren't necessarily always number one in, in wealth, although they were, as we said, after the sea snake got done. But they were pretty much always number one in influence because of their long connection to the Targaryens and their literal proximity to the Targaryens physically, uh, let alone all the previous marriages and all that but the baratheons had been very much moving up the ladder uh obviously descending from oris baratheon who was a targaryen bastard is a is a big part of that closeness but the but the baratheons were not just marrying into the targaryens they were marrying into the valerians it was kind of like this whole thing we're talking about where they're all just intermarrying each other well Prince Aemon, who was the heir to Jaehaerys and Alysanne for a while, married Jocelyn Baratheon, who was the daughter of Alyssa Velaryon and Rogar Baratheon. Alyssa was the sister to Coralise's grandpa Daemon. <laughs> if that made sense, I hope it did. So, four years later, uh, he there would be Rhaenys, uh, Coralise's future wife, who would be born. So, um, that's the queen who never was. And here is more art. From mm -hmm. Drafter G. Yeah, of her along with Melis, her dragon. Yeah, Melis, the Red Queen. So I love those that costuming and armor and all that. Very powerful. The tunic that she's wearing in general. I like the clothing, the costuming design on these. Yeah, it's like he, she was the queen who never was, but her dragon was the Red Queen. So yeah. <laughs> one of them got a crown. <laughs> <laughs> So other trips he made around this time were mentioned, and these are not any of his big nine voyages, the famous nine voyages he took. So he took voyages that were pretty substantial that didn't count among his famous nine ones. Uh, he took a trip to the west that included Old Town, Lannisport, and Lordsport. 
which I believe we have a map shot for. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lordsport, it's kind of interesting to hear someone going to Lordsport. You can see on the map the three locations right there. And then you can see from Michael Klarfeld's Iron Islands map, Lordsport. Yeah, very cool. I love that Iron Islands map that Klarfeld did. It's so good. You get all the sigils there and everything. I like the sigils showing you where the houses are to line up with their graphics. It's very cool. Yeah, we really need to get it put up behind us. <laughs> we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> and uh, you don't hear about that a lot. Of course, it's implied that there's a lot of trade with the Iron Islands, but it, it's you usually don't hear about it this specifically. So I think that's interesting. What do you do? You have any thoughts on some of these trading voyages, LML, or um, any other thoughts on, on on maybe the art or any of the stuff that we just talked about? Well, I do always love a good Michael Clarfeld map. That's for sure. I was I was definitely I was just zoning out on the uh, Iron Islands one. I do love how he's got all the sigils in there. Um, now I've just mostly just meta thoughts on the on the general. Like we already said, he's starting young. He's he's pushing the boundaries early on, and right away you can see their trade voyages. So his his sailing has always been linked to, uh, you know, an eye towards building wealth and establishing his house. So that's a great point. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a recurring theme with his voyages: is making money. He wants to explore. He wants to see new things, but he also wants to make a profit. And you know, it takes, you can, there's that old adage, it takes money to make money and the rich get richer. Well, he's a very much a, a case study in that. He took his family's wealth and multiplied it by massive amounts. Um, so in, in other words, phase one, sail the seven seas. <laughs> phase two, phase three, profits. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good rendition of the underpants gnomes. And uh, yeah, so it really, he he had an eye for gold and he knew what to do and he was very much ambitious and hardworking to make that happen. It didn't seem to have any hangups on different places to go, didn't seem to have any fear on exploring new places. As we'll see, he's going to go to progressively more and more unexplored places, looking for presumably more opportunities for wealth, but also just yeah, I mean, part of opening up these places, it's like you're opening up new markets. It's not just one, necessarily one voyage. It's You may establish trade routes and permanent, semi-permanent deals with some of these places that would build recurring wealth instead of just a big score. We have another trip that he took, a little bit more ambitious. This is, I guess, his first time outside of Westeros besides going to Pentos. Uh, so he goes to Lys, Tyrosh, Pentos again, and Mir. Uh, which we have another map shot for, which I guess is already on screen. And you can yes, see the, all the def- destinations circled. It makes sense to kind of hit all those targets along uh, the way. All kind those of, targets. <laughs> and you kind of wonder, I guess, at least. Uh, I'm not sure what the trade goods at least are. Mir has a lot of these fine glass works. Women. <laughs> Women, yeah, that is one of them. I don't, yeah. We don't know that he dealt in, in, in slaves, but yeah. he may have. Uh, it's certainly possible. I mean, he could be doing something very different, which is bringing women for the brothels back there. Like, yeah. Hey, you'll be free, technically. That's true. But you wonder about that exotic that women, like different looking women or whatever. That's yeah. uh, People would definitely pay for that. Uh, and then, yeah, Tyrosh has its dyes and Mir has its crossbows and, and its glass. Um, Mirish glass is Pentos really fancy. Pentos has pens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So there's a lot of a lot of possibilities there. Let's move on to the next section we're calling Bolder and Smarter. <laughs> Lord Corliss was an ambitious man. During his nine voyages on the Sea Snake, he was forever wanting to press onward, to go where none had gone before, and see what lay beyond the maps. 
Though he had accomplished much and more in life, he was seldom satisfied, the men who knew him best would say. Hmm. That does paint an interesting picture, a kind of guy who success doesn't make him rest on his laurels. It's always like, well, success just means I could have even more success. You know, <laughs> he's always just uh, very type A, I guess you could say. And uh, I like how there seems to be a, a little bit of a Star War, Star Trek nod there to go where none had gone before. <laughs> yes, yeah, oh, totally. maps indeed. We had spoken during uh, the Alyssa Farman episode, the Sun Chaser episode, of how he could have learned from Alyssa's ship design and read some of the same books she did. But he had access to a lot of things she didn't. And this is where we get into his his noble heritage, giving him significant legs up over other explorers. For one thing, he had four ships that he sailed kind of famously uh, throughout his life, whereas which is not something most people can do because ships are super expensive, <laughs> especially the kind that you want to take on dangerous voyages to dangerous places. We heard about that ship he called the Cod Queen, which is kind of a funny name. <laughs> and uh, the Summer Maid was his next one. They kind of get progressively more like dangerous sounding. Then the yeah. Ice Wolf. <laughs> and then the Sea Snake is like, oh, yeah. So he gets his name from the Sea Snake. It's interesting to point out he wasn't called the Sea Snake early in life. It was the nickname came from this ship. So it's kind of funny. He gave this ship a name and people started calling him that, which is I wonder how that happened. <laughs> That's a little strange, really. Um, so, yeah, let's let's, let's really Why dive in. Why did he name it the Ice Wolf? What's that? that? Why, is there any particular reason he named it the ice? Yeah, he tried to use it to explore yeah, okay. the, so the, ice, went, the went icy areas north that. of... Anyways, yeah. it just seems like such a arrogant kind of hubristic thing. I'm like, you're no wolf. <laughs> People aren't wolves. There's actually a cool... That's part of one of the cool parallels uh, we found. Um, we'll get to that shortly. It's kind of neat. The, the Ice Wolf has some other symbolic meaning. What I want to think about, this is where my imagination really runs wild. He's got all these books. He's got all, he's got access to the Valerian Library. He's got, he's probably got Targaryen books as well. And if he's sitting here going, where am I going to sail? I'm, he's looking at these old books and deciding, where am I going to go in these cool voyages? Where are these places he's going to go, uh, to go figure out? He's going to have a lot of literature to look through to give him ideas. He's going to have these old books, things that maybe Lomas Longstrider or Lissa Farman maybe didn't have access to. Rare books that would maybe describe some of these places and, and maybe even have information on their markets and trade goods that uh, might be something that's a, a kind of well-protected secrets. For example, we would not – he wouldn't go to Valeria probably because we did by this time already have Erea's experience. However – that was kept under wraps, right? Barth didn't write about Area. Barth's writings on Area came out much later. So that's interesting to consider. Corlys might not have known about that. On the other hand, he's an insider. So he might not, he might have heard it because, you know, he's so tight in the nobility. He might have been in on those secrets. But if he didn't, then why, then you wonder maybe he, he had good reason to not go to Valyria. Why didn't he go to Valyria as one of his voyages unless he knew something? Uh, any thoughts on that, LML? Um, yeah, he wasn't crazy. Uh, <laughs> That's a good point. He wasn't crazy. He's no yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's portrayed. It's supposed to be portrayed as a reckless and dangerous thing. It wouldn't work if George had too many people go there. So that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. 
And also, I'm like, there's so much, so many places to get riches in the world to make vast fortunes. Why go to the one that you're like yeah. 99% to just die? Yeah, I get. Well, I mean, I guess the argument is that if there really are still riches to be had there, that would make it compelling. But like you say, it's not worth it when there's other possibilities. Yeah. And so that's that's the other way to look at this. Maybe Corlys looked at the history of his family and all the different voyages House Valerian did, including when they lived in Valeria, like when they were well, before the doom, like the Valer the Valerians back then were apparently a, a naval house. And they would have probably been exploring back then as well. They may have gone to Sothorius. They may have gone to these other places. But the but Corlys may have had the opposite attitude. He may have looked at all the places his family had been and said, I'm not going there. I'm going to places they haven't been. He would have used it as a checklist for places he doesn't want to go. He's like, I want to go to new places only. Corlys comes off as a very practical and savvy kind of person. It just doesn't fit his character to do something reckless and dangerous. Um, I mean, he was fearless, yes, but not not foolish, foolish and reckless. Um, so, yeah, I just don't feel like it fits his personality. Uh, that's probably what I'd say. I agree with that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we we do have a good, pretty good beat on his personality, at least enough to know that he wasn't uh, like a Euron type of, you know, vision visionary in that sense. He was more practical. Yeah. So it's probably, it could be some of both, right? He could be, he may have wanted to check out some of the places his family had been, but maybe because it had been so long, it was time to check it out again. Or maybe because they'd only been there before the doom. And of course, the doom reshaped global politics. So there could be all sorts of new markets opening up and uh, trade goods. Like he could, like I said, he, could, he would have information on ancient trade routes and things like that. Um, and given that he eventually amassed a greater fortune than that of the Lannisters or Hightowers, which is kind of staggering to think about, mm -hmm. he definitely, as we said, had his eye on being practical this whole time. No matter what he was doing, it was mixed in with making sure a profit came out of it all. And uh, that speaks to him having a real good sense of value. Like, you, you got to know what trade goods can be brought back to Westeros and sell for a bunch. Some of them, you know, it's kind of obvious. Uh, some of the spices and stuff that I already have. But if he's going to new places that Westeros have never been, he's got to take a look at what they have and be like, this, I want to buy a lot of this and take it back. I want to buy a lot of this and take it back. He's got to know what's going to sell. So that's a whole different type of mindset than being a politician or being a sailor or being a warrior. It's just a totally different um, skill set. So it's just more fascinating. We're just building this picture of this guy who had so many skills. Yeah, he struck that balance between taking smart, calculated risks, but not, but sort of quitting while you're ahead, uh, knowing when to return home, that kind of thing. So it's, um, that's, you know, it's a good example of how you be successful. You can't be successful by sitting home and not venturing anything. Uh, but, you know, he also, the other thing about sailing to Valeria is it's hard to get a crew to sail to Valeria. And so, yeah, that's true. you know, that's another, it's another challenge. That's actually a great point that uh, we can talk about that now. I had talked about it. I, I had it in the notes for later, but it's totally fine to talk about now, which is that as a high lord, he has a different sort of relationship with his sailors than, say, Alyssa Farman, right? He, some of them are kind of sworn to follow him no matter what, whereas Farman, she had to attract people. She's like, hey, yeah, she had to use her charisma and, and lots of money, which, which he snake had the money too. But she didn't have, you know, sworn men. And 
uh, people like Oakenfist and, and she was specifically a fugitive. She had things going yeah, against her, a fugitive true. and a woman. <laughs> she she not only had to recruit people under the radar, but <laughs> she couldn't recruit her own people. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point uh, to put your finger on that. Yeah, he, it's almost more like the responsibility we see Rob and Ned deal with when they're thinking about their own men and risking the lives of their men who follow them. Those are the kind of things that Corliss would be thinking of uh, when he decides where to go. Yeah. So if we think about other stuff, we talk about wealth, about trade goods. Well, there's other things that have extreme value, like artifacts. And, for example, we hear about House Celtigar, which is also a house that uh, with Valerian, a Valerian origin. And we hear that on Claw Isle, well, their capital, they have a Kraken horn and a Valyrian steel axe. That's got to be worth a ton, <laughs> both of those things. So Corley's in his books, if he's looking about, you know, he might be keeping an eye out for things like that, for opportunities to get Valyrian steel or, I don't know, Kraken horns, I guess. That would be... Although we don't hear about those things. We don't, not even a peep. That, uh, it doesn't point to it. Yeah. That can be something that you can find and lose in a generation. Absolutely. Can look for and not find. Just got to figure that given their heritage and coming from Valyria, a place that seemingly had some magical artifacts, them being fairly, they weren't, you know, one of the 40 Dragon Rider families, but they were wealthy and powerful. So they, they probably had some cool stuff. <laughs> Maybe uh, wanted to get some of it back if they knew where more of it could be found. Um, now think about it. And here's another connection that that's, I think is really interesting that, that the Sea Snake had an advantage where all these other explorers didn't. Consider places, consider how the nobility, even in places thousands of miles away is sort of like an old boys network girls too but mostly boys um where they kind of just you're a noble from thousands of miles away they kind of just oh hello sir you know welcome you know you're one of us um in some ways it's very literal like at volantis you can't go behind the black walls of volantis unless you're invited in or unless you can trace your descent to old valyria so lomas longstrider goes to volantis eh what can he do Sea Snake sails into Volantis and they're like, oh, you are certainly the blood of old Valyria. Hi, welcome. How are you doing? So I think like just in these places, he's going to get a, the, the red carpet rolled out for him just because of who he is and who his house is. And because he's rich. And that obviously that counts for a lot, too. Uh, they want him to be his friend, whereas people are just not going to care about Lomas Longstrider. <laughs> They're not going to necessarily care about Alyssa Farman either. Uh, some people will, but uh, to a higher degree. Um, sea Snake, just wherever he goes, people are going to be <laughs> wanting to talk to him, wanting to give him stuff, wanting to, you know. So I think that's really, really important. A really big differentiator. They're like, mm -hmm. oh, it's the Lord of the Tides. <laughs> you know, that's a big name. So um, any thoughts on that, LML? Um, what might he, what like secrets he could get behind the black walls? What, what that, what this access gets him? What other things that it would do? No, I'm, I'm sure the racists in Volantis liked uh, Corliss Valerian quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has the silver hair and the purple eyes, fits right in. <laughs> no, but seriously, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, it, it, you know, it's a, again, just like we, we just said, uh, Corliss is going to be somewhat adverse to taking foolish risks because of his status as a lord. Uh, he also had a lot of doors open to him or would have as a lord. And so, yeah, that that definitely helped his uh, voyages be so profitable. So, no, that's just a good point. And the, the same thing goes with books. Any, anything that – any access he had at the Citadel to reading about ship design and other places, he might have that at Volantis as well, whereas other people wouldn't. Um, he would have access to whatever their secrets are maybe, at least at least greater access to those things. And that would teach him maybe more things about shipbuilding and trade routes and, and things like that, uh, about what other places might be worth going to. 
And even if his station didn't help him, like his his being Lord of the Ties and all that, his money, that speaks. <laughs> that carry that's uh, the universal language, of course. Summer Isles is another one of his major voyages, and talk about learning ship design. Apparently, the, the Summer Islanders have some of the best ship designs in the world. They're the, the most explorish of all the people we know, you could say, probably. And uh, he had to have learned some things there. Um, any other thoughts on what, he, what might happen to the Summer Islands for him? That's, they're kind of a different culture, and I wonder how he was received there different to some of the other places. Yeah, the Summer Islands are amazing um, because when you – I mean, the Summer Islands is like shipbuilding central – uh, their, their boats are built up quite a lot in the, uh, when Sam gets on one in the main series. So we know that these guys are just OG shipbuilders with techniques that have been developed kind of apart from everyone else. They're closely guarded. They have a different kind of wood, this golden heart wood, which is enables them to, you know, if they can make bows that are better than anything but dragon bone, then that tells you this wood is extraordinarily, uh, rigid, uh, yet flexible and supple. So it's like the perfect kind of wood that you want for long shafts and, and beams and things. And so long they shaft? could probably, <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, I was just taking that as far as I could. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's one of those things where you can see George has designed the culture a little bit there. Not only are they good shipwrights because they live on islands, but because they have a natural resource, which enables them to do that. So Corliss definitely would have learned quite a bit in the Summer Isles. That's a good, a good, another good point to raise. I feel like they would have been, I just picture him nerding out with some other Summer Islanders where there's a translator who can barely keep up. He's like, they're just talking to each other so fast. They have so much they want to say about ship design and nerding out over all that stuff. And But the translators would be like, wait, hold on. I can't, I, I got to tell him what you said. And <laughs> give me a second, man. Uh, super chat from Dark Mother, feeling sentimental about the smart couple who streams together to all our benefit. Indeed. Mm. Even when one of us almost dies of a coughing fit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so the, the chat was the chat was all like tears of list, tears of list. <laughs> I think I might have been, I don't know. <laughs> well, you're clearly immune to the tears of list because yeah. you're still alive. It didn't kill you, so the yeah. strangler. Well, I, I am the weeping lady of least. You can see me back there with That's the true. tears of least, so I should I should damn well be immune to it. You I notice think. Aziz <laughs> real quickly reached out and dumped over her cup of water. What's that about? <laughs> Um, okay, well, let's move on to the next step here. Uh, the Ice Wolf. The Ice Wolf. We're going to talk about the Ice Wolf. So consider all this stuff we've talked about to this point, all the different places, Old Town, Volantis, uh, Pentos, Summer Islands, probably Bravo, all these places that have shipbuilding as part of their history. He's been to all of them, and then he builds the Ice Wolf. So what is the point of the Ice Wolf? It was, uh, well, he wanted to go north, uh, northwest. He wanted to find a way around basically what's the lands of always winter. So how cool is that? He was trying to sail north and west, which as far as we know, no one's done that. And wow, that seems, talk about brave. I mean, it's not going to Valyria, I guess, but that's got to be damn cold and it, it, I guess the Ice Wolf would have been a ship that could handle things like ice in the water. Um, maybe should it could have gone with like the whale. The whale. <laughs> <laughs> well, Martin does call um, whales the wolves of the sea in a, a couple of instances, but okay. that's true. There that's we go. true. The Ice Wolf can be a whale. 
this this voyage is really interesting, Aziz, because it's it's seen, it's probably the most risky, if you will, of anything. Even sailing to a shy, like people go to a shy, that happens. Trying to find a northwest passage, it's definitely a, one, his riskiest voyage. But it's also Martin trying to riff on you know the explorers of uh, the 16th century and the 14th and 15th century, where they're trying to find a new passage. But again, think about it: if he finds a new passage, that's a trade route. So yes. really, he's still mm-hmm. going after trade there. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't. It's. It's. You're right that it's more risky in that it has more implied dangers, and that it also has more danger of being uh, not making a profit. Because if he doesn't find a passage, there's nothing else up there <laughs> to, to to do. Um, it's not like he can trade with the White Walkers or something. Now that said, he definitely still had money in mind even without the passage, because on the way to to this. We're told that he did two voyages in the Ice Wolf, at least two voyages in the Ice Wolf. And this is when he goes to Bravos, which uh, Shay is putting on screen. And he even goes to places like Eastwatch and Hardhome, which is another one we just... Hard, he went to trade with Hardhome. Now, Uh-oh, conspiracy how, how time, did, conspiracy time. Yeah, and how did he do that? That's supposed to be against the law. You're not supposed to trade with wildlings, so... It just is just glossed over, I guess. He just maybe because he's witch and powerful and he's the sea snake, he can do that. But we hear about Davos being on a ship with when he was young and he, he was sailing with somebody that, that traded arms to the wildlings and got executed. So maybe the sea snake wasn't trading them weapons. Maybe that's how he got away with it. He just traded, you know, whale bones for furs. I don't know, things like that. So that would maybe how he got away with it. But it's interesting. So what do you, what do you think, Elmo? What are some of the conspiracy theories that could come from this? <laughs> Oh, well, just anytime hard home comes up, I want to start talking about dragon bombs and the faceless men and the maesters. But all that <laughs> happened a long time ago. That was 600 years in the past. We're only like 200 years in the past here. So That's um, it does. Yeah. it is interesting. Is Does that show a little bit of like the sea snake throwing around his political power where he's breaking the law because he kind of knows he can get away with it and just sort of goes to hard home? Is like, yeah, they're not going to do shit about it. We might be suffering from... Um getting our chronology off here it's possible this prohibition with trading against the wildlings had didn't exist yet i I would think it did though i would think it existed for a long time i would think the starks would be like yeah i would think don't do that (laughs) but we don't know for sure the the prohibition may have only been a northern thing maybe it was more of a maybe it didn't spread to the rest of the realm because they just didn't didn't matter to them maybe they have like contracts like i got the official wilding contract and i'm the only one who can trade to them <laughs> well after after martin yeah, finishes all fin- off you know um winds of winter dream of spring all the duncan egg books fire and blood 2 and we get the tale of the sea snake uh he can gardener in you know that whole dynamic of him going to hard home we can figure out if that was a rebellious act or if he got a waiver or what well, the other part that, that's interesting here, too, to, to throw in the mix with the details, is that he went to Eastwatch and then to Hardhome. So whatever the what Night's Watch set, whatever the laws were, he found out right before he went there. So they probably knew he was going there. <laughs> so it may have been on more on the up and up than we think. But uh, it's still, it's definitely a, a point of interest for sure. Yeah, that points to it being to him having permission if he went to Eastwatch first. Yeah, you'd have to agree. So then he apparently went to, now it's unclear whether he did this first or after failing to find a Northwest Passage, but he went to Lorath. Um, here comes another map. Lorath, of course, is the kind of the backwater of the of the nine free cities. It's the least it's wealthy and the... Rude. That's what it says in the World of Ice and Fire. But yeah, rude. it is rude. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, got a really interesting history and you wonder 
how Corlys interacted with the blind god worshippers or the maze or any of that. What do you, you have any? Maybe even some more. Uh, maybe some more ship design stuff there. Probably not. Um, I don't know. They, they definitely have ship uh, and a lot of fishermen there, but it doesn't sound like they were particularly advanced. What do you think about him interacting with Lorath? Lorath is kind of a lesser discussed, but very interesting place. Uh, very creepy and, and cool. Uh, he probably went up there and was like, so do you guys have any money? No. <laughs> you guys are into I'm gonna, meditation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna okay, on. that's cool. And you <laughs> use the pronouns funny? Yeah, I'm out of here. <laughs> he sailed along to some somewhere far more interesting to a sailor. I like money. <laughs> yeah, he went to the port of Ibn next, which is really Ibn. cool. For Ib. For Ib, yes. And they uh, do have uh, some interesting whale tech for sure, and whale tech, ship tech that has to be geared towards, you know, hunting whales. I particularly love this map shot, too. I agree with what you said, but. I like, I'm yeah, Michael Clarfell. Cool uh, Michael Clarfell did a really great job of. Um, giving different architecture to the different regions in in Essos in particular, where you can, it really is evocative. I think. Yeah, um, I totally agree with that. Ib is um, a crazy place. It's very high fantasy when you read the yeah. description of Ib. Like they have a god king, and they're like these this weird sort of um, they can kind of like of a breed Neander- with humans, but not quite. You know, it's one of those like donkeys. Yeah, yeah, and the whole story of their um, b- them building a city and then get on the mainland Essos and the Dothraki wiping it out. It's it's pretty interesting stuff. But I'm I'm curious, like Corliss, like that's pretty off the beaten path. Like I wonder why he went there. At this point, it's almost like more of an explorer thing. Like he's just sort of hitting everywhere and just seeing what's there. Who knows what sort of opportunity he'll see? But it's interesting. He's open minded. I guess you could say like he's looking for trade opportunities in pretty weird places. I yeah. think it's interesting that he goes all the way to Ib on this this trip, but he doesn't actually go to like the Thousand Islands or anything like that until his later trips. He was so close. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe he was thinking ahead to that. He's like, I need to check out these yeah, bases on the way. If I want to yeah. go really far, I need to you know get a presence. Know the route that I'll take eventually. Yeah, yeah make sure it's a friendly port for him because Ib is known as a fairly closed culture. Apparent foreigners are not allowed outside the city port, the port of Ibn. However. It's a, it, apparently it does happen sometimes. They're sometimes allowed outside the city with guests, you know, if, if a, a, a local shows them. And if anyone's going to get showed around, it might be the, the famous and powerful sea snake. Well, let's think about this. The Ibanese are known for being traders themselves. They, yeah. they show up in ports everywhere. And so they'd surely been showing up at Driftmark um, forever. And so he yeah. probably actually had connections right to Ib before he ever sailed there. He probably at least had some names to drop or somebody to look up, I would (laughs) think. I'm picturing, like, some Ebony sailors, like, yeah, you ever come to Ib? Look me up! You know, just an empty gesture. And then (laughs) shows up. And they're like, look at this motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point, actually. In fact, it might, their history might go back even farther than that. They may have been trading with House Valerian before the Doom. uh, Because the Ib as a culture go- is as ancient as the Dawn Age, and they've been a, an island nation for since their beginning. So they've been trading all over. Uh, so that that actually stands to reason quite a bit. Um, yeah, that's a good catch there. That they, that he probably knew them before they knew him, or other way around. Yeah, they they knew him before he knew them. Yeah, Corliss is a little bit of an OG here. Like he's running shit. You know, I mean, he's not just sailing <laughs> around the world. Like he's making connections. He's making money. He's establishing himself. Like 
this guy is is uh he's an enter enterprising dude and this is yet again a place for him to study like Shea said the whaling ships this is yet another style of ship for him to to geek out over and study and learn from uh because this is still before his final most famous vessel was built the sea snake so a lot of, lot of different books and, and experiences went into the Ice Wolf, but even more went into the Sea Snake, which hasn't even happened yet. So that was uh, the first voyage. As Shea said, it looks like Ib was as far as he went besides the – well, no, Ib is as far as he went on yeah, his first voyage. The first second time. voyage in the Ice Wolf is when he goes beyond the wall. Uh, he which already is, went behind, beyond the wall in right. the first voyage, you know, technically. Yeah, you're right. Home, but. Sorry, we should say beyond hard home. This is when yeah. he goes behind hard home. This is when he's actually looking for the Northwest Passage. So he's already been to hard home, East Watch and all that. And he's he's already kind of established, at least he knows what's there. So he's going So he's going farther. from the East trying to find a way to get to the West and North. Yes, to be clear. he's trying to sail around it he's all. Coming, yeah. As we saw, he was coming from Bravos, Lorath, and Essos side. And that makes a lot of sense because, as we know, it's very dangerous to sail from uh, along the south of Westeros. Because a lot of ships can't do that very easily. Um, A lot of ships are built in Old Town and just spend their entire life life of a ship going to places, just staying on the west coast. They would go to Lordsport and Landsport and the Arbor, and back and just back and forth. Maybe maybe to Bear Island, but they would a lot of times would never even bother to. Sail east because it's dangerous. It's whirlpools and krakens, and that that southern shore of Dorne is dangerous. There's just yeah, there's nowhere to land besides Starfall, basically all the way from Old Town to uh, like the Water Gardens or um, you know Sunspear. Yeah, we saw how bad it was for Oakenfist. Um, so yeah, it's not uh, not an easy thing. It's, it might seem simple, but it's not. So far, this northerly route thing, I really, I, I wish I had more to say about it. I don't, I don't want, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to move on because it's just such a cool idea. Um, you wonder if he was, how aware he was of things like, is the world a globe? And if he was trying to go, yeah, yeah so Northwest Passage was, was his main goal. But if he found, you know, uh, a way around the globe, he certainly would have run with that as well. If whatever else he found, he would have been interested in, but I guess he didn't find anything. I wish we had more detail on exactly how, the borders, like just how far north he tried to go, and uh, did he see anything? Like how cold was it? Uh, I doubt he saw dead things in the water, but it, you know that kind of thing comes to mind. <laughs> you know, when you're someone is going that far north, like where the the land of always winter is, uh, very very um, provocative, evocative. Not well, provocative, Aziz. Every time George <laughs> mentions the idea that there might be a passage, um, it just makes me think that he's might be keeping alive the idea that the others. Uh, don't just come out in Westeros and that they come down from the North Pole, maybe into the Grey Waste, you know, and that the demons of the Lion of Night that we hear about in the East are actually the Others and it's their version of the Others. Um, that's a okay. that's a theory that like, you know, Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire likes that one. A few other people have talked about it. So every time he teases that Northwest Passage idea, I feel like he's sort of keeping that idea alive. I believe that uh, Adam Whitehead likes, uh, as in AKA Wordhead, is also a fan of that theory. I think he's even drawn a speculative map of, you know, West Planetos' version of Antarctica. Or would that be it? No, the North Pole. Wait, which is, is Antarctica in the south of the north? I always forget. God, haven't you ever seen Alien vs. Predator in Antarctica (laughs) where they they find the pyramids? (laughs) Sorry. I guess not. (laughs) 
Uh, super chat from San Rixian 666 for the sea snack. No, for the snee snack. The snee snack. Sorry, I'm very sorry. I mispronounced the snee the snee snack. <laughs> you know how many times I wrote the Sean snake in our documents? <laughs> so many. No comment. So many. No comment. All right. So let's do our mid roll shout outs as well as um, showing that process video we wanted to show. So this is our little mm -hmm. mid-roll break that includes some fun art. Let's start with that. Let's do the process video first. Okay, here we go. I will play this. Look how cool this is. It's sped up a little. Yeah, I had to speed it up from what he even linked us to just get it under one minute. But yeah, Look at that turbo, nice turbo fingers. Yeah, he's, he is that fast, though, in real life. <laughs> See how the magic is done. Look at that. Look at those dragons coming in. His yeah, his so ability cool. to create depth is really, really inside fantastic. the like 3D models and preferences that he has. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, I always enjoy seeing this kind of stuff. I think that's yeah. one of the things people enjoy about watching Sanry work on our live streams. Oh, you can, yeah, yeah. You yeah. can see I the process. You, but you just, can see these airbrush things, by the way. In the yeah, look how cool that is. Look at that color. Love it. <laughs> oh, I see that... Uh, yeah. It's it is Antarctica is the south and Arctic is the north. Okay, right. <laughs> I can never keep that straight. I can never remember. <laughs> yeah, Antarctica is in the south. That's where Atlantis is. It's under the ice down there. Okay. Um, so yeah, you can see Ant Antarcticus. Ant and we got through Atlantis. that. And so yeah, like we said, that'll be for sale imminently. Yeah. And we will certainly say something in an episode when it is actually for sale. For um, one of our other non the Song of Ice and Fire favorite fandoms is The Expanse. Of course, The Expanse has a deep connection to George R. R. Martin, given that the authors... Uh, it was started of, in a role-playing group. That George um, with, was part of. With George R. R. Martin, yeah. yeah. Um, but book eight out of nine, and there are also a variety of short stories and novellas, is out now. Yep, and only so. The series is going to be done in probably two years when the next final book comes out. And we're huge fans, and you can get the, you can get the book through our um, website, Amazon. And uh, I can tell you that... I, I've loved, I've really enjoyed every book in the series, but this most recent one, book eight, is my favorite in the series. So the quality just stays up there. Highly yeah. recommend it. There's a new season, season four, coming out on Amazon probably late this year. So it's never been a better time to get into the expanse. Yep. It's a great, great experience. The world building is fantastic. The characters are great. Um, and each season is better than the last. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, um, I mentioned our Radio Westeros Dance of the Dragons collaboration at the beginning of this episode. Just a reminder that we're going to be recording that this week, and uh, hopefully that'll be out. We should, we're expecting to get it out before the TV season. That's our goal, so keep an eye out for that. Um, and as, as a reminder, uh, you can use the, con the discount code HISTORY to get 5%, uh, sorry, $5 off your Ice and Fire Con ticket purchase or your Con of Thrones ticket purchase. We hope to see you at both conventions, uh, or at least one, if you can make one. And uh, please ask us... Anything you want to about uh, the convention experience or anything like that, we we host discussions about it on our Facebook our Facebook group, which also I would like to recommend at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so we'll see you at Ice and Firecon. We hope LML will be there, and 
means Sam Rixian will be there, speaking yep. of, her, of her. That, and, uh, that goes for whatever year you're listening to. This is not 2019 that we're recording this, but this, this message yeah. applies to 2020, 2021, yeah. 2022. I do think it is likely that at least we will be at the, all of these years. That's right. Yes, it's we're not. It's a lovely convention. We are not likely to go anywhere so easily. <laughs> so let's do some mid-roll shout-outs for patrons who have continued to make our show possible. We are unendingly grateful for what being able to do this for a living it's it's really just such a blessing thank you to vorsaki wielder of a valyrian steel arak with a dragon bone hilt kohel koei called sun piercer wielder of a dragon bone bow kokabo the tamer wielder of the wildfire whip gehenna and i would like to shout out two different queens of love and beauty we're uh Feeling the love today. Aaron, lady of the long desert, names Emma of Starfall, the queen of love and beauty in sight of pods and men. How lovely. That's right. And from the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carl. Sorry, Queen Carrie. (laughs) Queen Carl. (laughs) I really butchered that. Let me start that over. From the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Carrie of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from Beyond the Wall. Very cool. I was like, wow, we've got two same-sex pairings in this one. <laughs> Queen Carl. And, oh. Sigh. <laughs> oh. uh, and also thanks to our Ironborn captains, it's definitely time to shout out the sailing group, given the uh, yeah. content of this episode. Black Matto Stormrider is captain of the Rusted Hinge. Oisan the Wanderer is captain of Naga's Living Flame. Sir Selvus Redblade of White Harbor is captain of Trident of the North. Lord Chuck Laws, captain of the Droman Nightblood, is destroyer of evil. John Gregor is captain of the Fist of the Drowned God. Sir Kiron of Lonely Light is Scourge of the Sunset Sea, captain of Naga's Breath, a Droman armed with siphons of wildfire. Aileen is Archer Queen, captain of the Border Collie. Crimson Cade is captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. Jasana the Just is collector of tolls, captain of the Golden Gift. Lord Mitch of House Bailey is captain of Widow's Blood. His heir is Lordling Mason of House Bailey. Beneath the Gold is a podcast focusing on lesser-known A Song of Ice and Fire characters. And Phantom of House Physics is the Sunset King, Plato Oplomo, captain of Leviathan's Banshee. I also want to give a shout-out to LML's Sunday streams. People have been calling it Church, which is pretty uh, pretty accurate. It's Sunday, so that's <laughs> a good thing to call it. And uh, y- you keeping that regular for quite a long time has really made it, uh, well, it's made it a regular thing. A lot of people in the fandom, just it's the thing you do every Sunday. Uh, I show up very often on Sundays and hang out, have a good time. And you guys always have fun discussions and there's very often San Rixian art and just, just a, it's a great regular experience. You guys are doing a great job. Well, thanks man. Um, it has, it has become a fun staple. Uh, sometimes I, it, it gets ahead of me as far as like editing all the audio to put everything on the podcast stream. Um, but I'm, I'm looking for some help on that and I'm getting better at that. But, uh, yeah, no, it's great. It's it's fun to collaborate with all the other myth heads. And the exciting thing is that we're going to be turning this into uh, a sh- an HBO show coverage hour uh, yeah, during the season I'm here. I'm sorry. I just really cracked up at the idea. You're like, the fun thing is that we're going to be turning this into an HBO show. <laughs> oh. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, big news. That? Big news. We've been big picked news. up. Uh, they dropped the ringer. Sorry, Bill Simmons. Sorry, Mallory Rubin. Jason Concepcion, you guys are out. And, uh, Too bad this isn't April Fool's Day. This is yesterday. It was April Fool's Day. We should really go over it. Yeah, well, I can read the synopsis for my fantasy novel if you'd like. Um, but <laughs> Actually, you should because it's really funny. It's only a few paragraphs too. So, yeah, do it. Do you have it handy? I do. It's, it's up right here. So 
He has it memorized. So so just real quick, I'll be finish my series plug. So basically this Sunday, 3 Eastern, pregame show with all the myth heads. We'll be analyzing the show from a book's perspective, trying to read the tea leaves, uh, talking about chiefly those sort of comparisons, symbolism, stuff like that. Lots of fun myth heads you know, some you don't. Uh, so that's going to be happening. We'll also do a postgame show. That's all on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer channel. And you guys know you can cool. find all my stuff. By looking for Lucifer means Lightbringer, but I am I am an aspiring author, uh, like like many of you guys, and uh, <clears throat> you know, speaking of Atlantis and lost civilizations, I I'm writing something called the Chronicles of Akinra, and uh, so book one will follow Isentris, the rise and fall of the last queen of the kingdom of Levitra, Isentris, <laughs> a powerful sor- sorceress, and the three princes of the blood royal, Hermias, Jalen, and Trisavir. With the death of their father, King Tarka VII, these princes will turn to rivals, and the throne of Levitra stands imperiled. <laughs> Her own hands tied by secrets more dangerous still, Isentris must work to keep the peace through the hidden hands of her only true allies, the princess Jolessa, a talented girl of only 17, her handmaiden Humira, a refugee of the same foreign <laughs> war that claimed the life of King Tarka, and the assistant to the keeper of records, Levemir Flexpen. Stick... <laughs> Stick thin yet iron strong, the one-legged librarian Levemir had been Isentris's pillar for years, functioning as her eyes and ears inside the capital and ferreting out every plot. But when the doomsday prophecy of an ancient tome aligns with the current events, Queen Isentris and her motley band must work their greatest miracle yet to save Levitra from eating itself. <laughs> and all the while, under the holy mountain Viagra sleeps the ancient <laughs> magic known as the Echinra. Holy Mountain Viagra. So there's there's a little more, but I don't want to, um, you know, we got to hear about the yeah. neighboring city-state of Cialis and the evil King Chantix. But um, as you can see, this is, a, this is a fantasy novel synopsis made purely out of the names of drugs. And uh, yeah. this is because pharmaceutical drugs sound just like fantasy names. And yeah, it's, it's on my yes, Facebook and Twitter if you want the rest. Yes, that's great. Okay, so we have this great parallel. Um, LML, you want to take this? You, uh, we, we had a chat with at KW Dent too, who is co-host of the Blood of the Podcast podcast. Check that out. And on Twitter, we had this, this conversation about, I pointed out that I didn't really have uh, a great parallel life for Corlys. And uh, well, here we go. We, we, we had one uh, brought to us to our attention anyway. Yeah, shout out to KW Dent and the Blood of the Podcast. This was a really nice parallel. So this is this is done in the style of the there are two answers, you know, kind <laughs> of uh so Corliss Valerian was the first to sail Westeros to visit Nefer and navigate the Thousand Islands. Similarly, Tyrion Lannister has a as somewhat of an explorer's arc early in a Game of Thrones as he travels to and visits the Wall. While Corlys Valerion sailed his ship Ice Wolf north to the Wall, Tyrion travels with Jon Snow and Ghost. Ghost, a white direwolf, certainly is the physical embodiment of an ice wolf. Corlys yes. Valerion then mm-hmm. travels east, as does Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons. In the famous Targaryen Civil War, The Dying of the Dragons, or The Dance of the Dragons as it is better known, Corlys Valerion serves as Rhaenyra Targaryen's Hand of the Queen, and of course, we know Targaryen, uh, Tyrion was the hand of the king during the War of the Five Kings, or at least the surrogate uh, hand of the king. Um, so Rhaenyra was the leader of the Blacks uh, in the Civil War, and she's often paralleled with Daenerys Targaryen. And in the show, Tyrion serves as the hand of the queen to Daenerys Targaryen. And of course, that could happen in the books too, as Corlys did to Rhaenyra. Um, so they have... Uh, 
What's this mean? L.A. names? Oh, yeah. He, he pointed out that, that there's some naming convention similarities with all the L name, Lannister names like uh, um, Lyman and Lorimar and uh, several others that are escaping me. And comparing that to how many L names there are, Lena and Lanor uh, from the Valerians. Yeah. And then if you consider the Tyrion Targaryen theory, dun, 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 shout out to... My, uh, I've got a Tyrion Targaryen theory on my LoseForMeansLightBringer.com. It goes, it gives both Corlys and Tyrion Valerian descent. Additionally, Tyrion Targaryen would make both Corlys and Tyrion the grandsons of King Jaehaerys I and King Jaehaerys II, respectively. Now that is some next level shit right there. Nice job, yeah. PW. That's that last one is like, yeah, that's that's hard to catch that kind of thing. And I, just, I love those parentage this this family tree catches like that and the fact that they're both jaharis is really cool and in fact we we found a different parallel jaharis thing like that at a different one that's escaping me but it, it just sells the idea that it was 100 percent intentional the fact that there's two of these at least two of these uh also on screen right now is uh xerxes the blue-eyed cat the blue-eyed siamese the who white. Is a white walker kitty mm. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's move on to the actual voyages of the actual sea snake, the ship, not the guy, the ship that he was named after. Nine voyages to Essos on this ship alone. Nine voyages to Essos. Damn. <laughs> Quote here. Traders from Old Town and the Arbor oft sailed as far as Carth in search of spice, silk, and other treasures, but Corlys Valerian and the Sea Snake were the first to go beyond, passing through the Jade Gates to Yi Ti and the Isle of Lang, returning with so rich a load of silk and spice that he doubled the wealth of House Valerian in a stroke. Okay, doubled the wealth of a house that was absurdly wealthy, so wow. And it kind of goes... Uh, without saying, well, maybe it does go without saying. The, the interesting thing here is these are things that are these are wealthy trade goods sold to wealthy people. He's not bringing back you know cheaper you know fabrics for making common garments with. This is silk and spice. These are the kind of things like common-born people can't even afford pepper in Westeros. So this is these are all expensive trade goods, and that's why when Jaehaerys was talking about making a, like a tax on the wealthy, he taxed luxury goods. And uh, but I don't know if those taxes were still in place when the sea snake was uh, doing his thing. I think they were because it was certainly during Jaehaerys' realm, so or reign rather. So I got to figure uh, the realm itself may have benefited from the, their cut of of these voyages, uh, large taxes, and so in a sense, some of that money maybe did trickle down. Maybe maybe that's how some of the uh, public works projects were partly funded. Well, so that's the whole point of, of trickle-down theory is it works to the extent that if you have the wealthy people who are increasing their wealth, turning around and using their wealth on things that create other jobs, then it works. The wick gets short-circuited when the wealthy don't have an incentive to create jobs, which is, you know, economics and all that shit. But in right. this kind of economy, um, we're, we can specifically see that Lord Corliss does use his wealth to build a whole new fucking city. Uh, mm -hmm. which it, that's going to create an awful lot of jobs. And also the additional trade flowing to the island created two new towns that started rapidly increasing. Um, so there's a lot of wealth that he brought to his island. And that probably is strategic because he's like part explorer, part merchant, part lord, and part general all at the same time. So he's thinking about the security of his island and capturing trade. You know, he's taking trade from other... Spots like um, Goldtown and King's Landing, 
Uh, so it's, there's a lot of strategy, a lot of strategy going on there. That's an excellent point. I want to add something to that, which is that it's, you're right that it's a good example of a, of a time where he is definitely creating jobs with all this, these works projects and things like that. And there's a hidden factor here, which is that the peasants are not peasantry isn't aren't super mobile, but they're not forced to live where they live. It's just hard for them to move. But if they can move, a lot of times they will. And so by making his play, his kingdom, the kingdom, his his island prosperous, he's encouraging more commoners to move there and thus participate in this prosperity. And thus, and these commoners are people that can be recruited as sailors and soldiers and all that. It's actually kind of a, that's a thing that happened in the Middle Ages that, that when, uh, after the Black Death, labor was at a shortage and peasants actually had a kind of a weird market advantage where there wasn't enough of them so they could sort of pick and choose where they went to get better wages. Now, of course, that ended badly because lots people started passing laws to prevent them from moving from place to place. But uh, And that happened in Westeros too. Bloodraven made people stay put during the drought. Um, but but the fact that he made people stay put during the drought implies that they were allowed to move around when there wasn't things like that going on, which is how we can get to this place, uh, which is that the sea snake was probably increasing his own population of his own island, which just gives him more power as well. Back to the fact that he doubled their wealth at a stroke is just mind-boggling considering how wealthy they were. It's like going from, I don't know, being worth... 200 million to being worth 400 million. <laughs> uh, probably even more than that, really. Uh, so let's look at uh, the Jade Gates and Karth. We have a map for that. And uh, again, we get to treat ourselves to the the uh, visual goodies of, from Michael Clarfeld. And you got to figure there's some crazy good wealth and trade opportunities there because that is a very advanced civilization that's existed for a long time. They have wealth. They have... You know, these emperor gemstone emperors. I mean, it just sounds like they're wealthy, right? <laughs> so I think Aziz um, George Martin thinks a lot about trade routes. Um, trade routes definitely defined the ancient world uh, to an extent that they don't quite the same anymore. And if you look at Carth, you can see exactly why it's so wealthy because it sits astride both a you know a land and a sea passage that are the only passages through natural obstacles anywhere around. And and the same thing, we used the same logic when we were trying to figure out if Ashai used to be the capital of the Great Empire of the Dawn. And we figured out that a city that big, sitting on the tip of a peninsula, astride something called the Saffron Straits. And saffron, we are told, is the most valuable spice in the world. Mm. There's no question that this is a spot that a wealthy civilization would exist on right on the trade route there. So Martin thinks about this a lot when he thinks about wealth and power. And we see that reflected here with the sea snake. That's an excellent point. And if you think back a little farther in history, Karth's positioning was even better when Valyria was still there. Because <laughs> that's talk about the trade opportunities they would have from Valyria. They were probably just outstanding. Valyria, with all their absurd amounts of wealth, would just gobble up luxury goods as well as, you know, slaves and other things. They would probably just be huge consumers of such things given their dramatic wealth. So let's uh, let's go forward here. Now we have some art of ET. <laughs> I'm sorry, from did you Draftergy. say that, that, that somebody would gobble up the sea snake? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they would gobble up the sea snake. <laughs> that's that's more um euphemisms popping up, isn't it? <laughs> it's just that one episode of South Park after uh I can't hear the word gobble without thinking of Cartman, but go ahead. <laughs> So look at the, here's another wonderful piece. We have uh, art of, of um, imagining of what Yi Ti 
Utish people would look like, given the indications from the world of ice and fire is some cool. of our inspiration there. And I just love, again, I'm just really drawn to the, the depth in this picture or in this drawing. Um, we also have, uh, he also went to Lang and as well as this is where you, we mentioned the, uh, the, the specific spices besides silk. There was saffron, which you mentioned, LML, and then pepper and nutmeg and more. And um, like you said, too, the fact that it's named after saffron, those straits, there's other places that have a similar name. There's the cinnamon straits that we're going to get to in just a minute. And it's the same kind of concept that's named for this thing that makes it so wealthy. And uh, it ex- maybe explains why a civilization was able to flourish there in the first place. The Iron Islands does it sort of refers to the people, but they have great iron deposits there as well. That's a big part of where they're Yeah, no, it's named place. after the iron deposits. The people are just really egotistical and bullheaded. And they're like, no, it's named <laughs> after us because we're tough. We're like, oh. like, no, dipshit, it's named after the iron that's on your islands. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, speaking of Lang, uh, so there's the old ones that live under the city, and I've got this. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of why I wore the Lovecraft shirt today for the old ones living under Lang. Yeah, I wonder. I kind of doubt that Corlys interacted with the old ones, but <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> but he did go to Lang, and he may have heard them talked about. Uh, maybe uh, I don't know. You wonder how they received him because the Langi are. They don't. They may. They may not give a crap about his heritage or who he is. They're a little bit, a uh, little bit closed, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost here. like George just sort of tossed that in. It's like you know, he went to everywhere in the Jade Sea. He went to Lang and he went to here and he went to there. And Yeetie's really Yeetie and Karth are the places where he probably made the most money. Probably, yeah. There's some other places that are mentioned um, that are hard. They're not really mentioned anywhere at all. They're just on the map, and they're mentioned that the Sea Snake went there. The Isle of Elephants. Marahai and the Isle of Whips like the Isle of Whips is like a way station for slave trading and uh Marahai is looks like Santorini uh in the uh GNC I guess it is yeah it's a or volcanic it crescent island it's a caldera island yeah and then the Isle of Elephants this is kind of a strange concept. I mean, elephants on an island doesn't sound mm-hmm. sounds a little strange, but the cinnamon it's right by the cinnamon straits which I just mentioned and that is Cinnamon as well. Uh, now, here's another quote. Other islands of note in the Jade Sea, as recorded by Corlys Valerian in his letters, include, one, the Isle of Elephants, whose Shan rules from a palace made of ivory. Ivory, that makes sense. Made of ivory. But, you know, of elephants. <laughs> uh, Marahai, the Paradise Isle, a verdant crescent attended by twin fire islands, fire island, eh? Where That's burning cool. mountains belch plumes of molten stone day and night. That's where Alyssa Farman should have gone, fire yeah, island. Yeah. And the caldera, that's what he was saying. That's yeah. Yeah, perfect. And you can see that in the map, too. Yeah. And three, the Isle of Whips, a bleak and barren way station where slavers from half a dozen lands buy, sell, breed, break and brand their chattel before sending them onward. It's like a mini slaver's bay. Yeah, that one's very tiny, as you can see in the map, and very very much smaller than the other two. That's got to be a bleak, horrible place. Mm -hmm. That's his first of, uh, that's his first voyage to Esso. So this was not a small voyage. He went, he did in one voyage covered a lot of what Euron's entire career. (laughs) Euron says he went to all these different places and makes a big deal out of it. Sea Snake just did it and then just did it again and again. Uh, So any more thoughts on any of these places, Isle of Whips or Marhai or any of that before we move on to the next voyage? 
It's interesting that he just gets around here. I mean, this is, he's definitely, why didn't he go to Manticore Island? I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> he went to just about everywhere else, though. We don't ever see that he went to Sothorios or the Basilisk Islands, so he seems to be trying to uh, stay away from that kind of trouble. Yeah, that's, that's part of the whole, you're right, that that would have been a good thing to bring up when we were talking about why he didn't go to Valyria, and, and you're, you're, you're right about him being more of a, um, not, certainly not cautious, but but more about bottom lines and not taking risks that don't need to be taken. And like we said, he's clearly oh, yeah. finding wealth. He, why does yeah. he need to go to Sathorius? Why go to unknown wealth when you can go to known wealth? Yeah, why go to danger? Why go to danger when you can just swap some goods? <laughs> keep your keep your danger limited to storms and krakens and pirates. No need to face oh my incredible diseases. So yeah, but you make a good point, LML, that it's interesting that he only went this far because on his sec only, it's really far, but <laughs> in his next voyage, he goes to Ashai, which isn't that much farther. But logistics, if his ship is just full of trade goods, he can't what's the point of going to Ashai? He doesn't have any room left. <laughs> and you know what? The the thing about Ashai is that Ashai has very unique needs as far as what they want and what they have. Unlike mm, any other place. So it's possible that his first voyage to the Jade Sea filled him in on what he could turn a profit with on a shy. And he came uh. back there later with the things that they need, which I guess is like food and maybe slaves to do experiments on. or Children. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, you, you're right. He may have intended to go to Ashai as part of that trip and then changed his mind when he heard the reality of it and been like, actually, let's come back more prepared, more properly prepared. That makes a lot of sense. And of course, if there's any place to get golden gems cheap, it's Ashai. So uh, that tells, I guess this tells us a couple of things. One, that the, the that story is at least partly true. There's some good trade goods there. And it may be not as dangerous as some rumors have it being because uh, he does certainly didn't treat it like Sothorios or Valyria, which, you know, it isn't like those places, but it is creepy and mysterious and people apparently just disappear and <laughs> there's strange the water isn't drinkable yeah there's you know lots of stuff um any other thoughts on ash either no he probably you you i figure it was probably somewhat straightforward if he brings lots of food and gives them gets lots of gems and gold like if he's just keeping trying to get trying to get wealth it seems very straightforward how you could get it there but there may be more to it perhaps we will learn more well, of course i guess we should give a shout out to Alyssa. Farman and the fact yeah. that uh, he saw a Sun Chaser here. I mean, that's a, that was a pretty cool way to end that Alyssa Farman story. It was exciting. Yeah. yeah anymore, I haven't I haven't had new thoughts on that since we did that episode. But I guess it, we should take a second if if Ashea or LML either you have any new thoughts on El, uh, Alyssa being there or what Corley's. You know, we know we're pretty sure he was right because of his expertise on ships and everything. And but. Did he look for her? Did, you know, he would have maybe assumed she was dead by then? Like, I mean, he, maybe he didn't yeah. look for her because it would have been so long and there's no way she still would have been alive. I really like the idea that George has gardenered in Alyssa Farman as Quay's backstory. I, I mean, I, I'm not set on it, but it really makes a lot of sense to me. Um, somebody that's so brave as to steal dragon eggs, defy the blood of the dragon, sail across the unknown ocean. Once they were got to a shy... I mean, it could have, I could totally see her later in life delving into dark magic exploration. I mean, she's, this is a fearless person who likes to have power and adventure. It's the kind of person that likes magic. Um, so, I mean, yeah. it just makes a lot of sense. And then you have all these parallels with her and Danny, where with Danny reminding her 
of the Targaryen princess that she used to be in love with and hatching the dragons that the dragon eggs that she set in motion in all likelihood. So I'm yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm still having thought about the theory longer. I still like it. Cool. And that's Painkiller Jane's theory, of course. It's still holding up under scrutiny. That's that's the mark of a good theory. If a theory mm-hmm. can't hold up under scrutiny, it probably wasn't a good theory in the first place. And this one keeps on trucking. It seems to be gaining traction rather than losing it, I think mm-hmm. it would be fair to say, uh, given uh, our perspective anyway. I don't see. I don't know that there's any like major flaw or disqualifying fact in it. It's just speculative. So yeah, there's nothing that like is a slam dunk proof of it. But there's definitely nothing whatsoever that can knock it off the board either. Well, let's think about it. This though, Martin does like to do. I mean, sometimes he does put Easter eggs in, but he likes to do things for a purpose. And yeah. so we've we as these we've talked about the idea that Danny's probably going to have a glass candle in her possession because Marwin the Mage is coming to find her and advise her. Marwin the Mage had his hands on a bunch of glass candles and figured out how to use them. He's gearing up for the end of the world struggle, so he's probably brought one of those that the Citadel's not using. So we've talked about how in our a shy Great Empire of the Dawn episode, how originally Martin planned planned on Danny going to a shy. And Quaithe keeps telling her, you know, there's truth. There's truth for you. There's truth. And we get this idea. It's probably deep magical knowledge. And then Martin changed his plans, as we know. And Danny's not going to a shy. But we've talked about how uh, Danny might be using a glass candle to be able to go to a shy and gather knowledge in a shy. And so if that happens, Danny will be communicating with Quaithe more. And that gives us an opportunity for Quaithe and Danny's relationship to build a little bit. Because right now it really lacks the, the emotional connection of Bran and Bloodraven, which is a lot more interesting right now than Quaithe and Danny. Right now Quaithe is just kind of a trope. Um, so if Danny were to get a glass candle and start delving into magic more, um, you could see her relationship with Quaithe deepen. And then this backstory maybe could even come into play here. But I'm just, yeah, you know. I agree because like if Quaithe is going to, if this connection is there, there will, there should be some clues in, you know, the next time we see Quaithe, uh, I imagine like the language will be written a certain way. If there, if there's a connection there, George will, you know, complete it or give us more to work with. He will. Um, and yeah. if not, then then maybe it wasn't meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about his third voyage. Now, of the nine voyages, uh, four through eight, we don't know anything about. Uh, so keep that in mind as we're moving forward here. Number three, however, we have a lot of detail on. Mm-hmm. So here's another quote. Oh, for the Thousand Islands. Yeah, oh, Thousand Islands, God. putting up on screen. And mm-hmm. here we go. Can you read this? Yeah. The god kings of Ib, before their fall, did succeed in conquering and colonizing a huge swath of northern Essos, immediately south of Ib itself, a densely wooded region that had formerly been the home of a small, shy forest folk. Some say that the Ibanese extinguished this gentle race, whilst others believed that they went into hiding in the deeper woods or fled to other lands. The Dothraki still call the great forest along the northern coast the Kingdom of the Ifakevron, the name by which they knew the vanished forest dwellers. The fabled sea snake, Corlys Valerian, Lord of the Tides, was the first Westerosi to visit these woods. After his return from the Thousand Islands, he wrote of carved trees, haunted grottos, and strange silences. Obviously, that's incredibly familiar to anyone who's read the series. Yeah, that is. It's just Children of the Forest. forest. Yeah, it's like straight up, just, yeah, all just like them, whether there's some differences. I, I, I could believe it, depending on when they diverged, you know, there could be 
significant differences, but essentially that's what they are. Yeah, the co- they're at least cousins. I yeah, guess. at least cousins. Like yeah. you know, you you could see that they could be slightly different. Carved trees, haunted grottoes, yeah, strange silences, all of that. What do you think, LML? This is this is very cool. Sea Snake must have been. He probably made the connection too of hearing about the old gods, and you know, he went north to Hardhome and East Watch and all that. So, yeah, you start to wonder if Sea Snake is like. Maybe in the cult of Starry Wisdom or the Illuminati or something. He's going to a lot of magical places here. I mean, I'm just, I'm just kind of tinfoiling, obviously, to have, I'm having fun, but it, yeah, it is, it's interesting. Uh, it's probably just George using the sea snake as, uh, exposition. Like there's only one or two people that have ever been to some of these places. So if you need, if George needs to talk about the Ifakevron, then this is a convenient way to do it. There's probably no yeah. important thing for Corliss Valerion, the fact that he goes here, but. I don't know. I do wonder, um, his son, quote unquote, or possibly, you know, ba- uh, grandson, Adam Valerion goes to the Isle of Faces on his dragon before yeah. going to Tumbleton. So there is kind of this idea of these, of these Valerions going to these interesting places. I actually think that's because of symbolism. Uh, the seahorse and the Valerion ships are, are, con- uh, vehicles for a lot of green seer symbolism, which is too complicated for me to even try to explain right now. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of green seer stuff going on. And so that's why I think they're going to places like Lang and, uh, th- you know, this Efra Kevron forest. But let me drop a little something else on you here. So, uh, they're called, some say that the, um, a densely wooded, Vanished forest dwellers, they were called um, the Woods Walkers. Is that in this paragraph or is that a, the, another paragraph? It's not paragraph? in this paragraph, Different but paragraph, they are yeah. called that, yes. So what's interesting is they sound like children of the forest, but Woods Walkers sounds like the White Walkers because the full name for the White Walkers is White Walkers of the Wood. So even mm. in this description of the Ephekevron, George is dropping us cl- uh, clues that the White Walkers are related to the children of the forest. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's that that the part of the quote that says "or fled to other lands," which uh, makes sense uh, that they could have moved to Westeros, or you know, this could have been this this would well this not could have been it was when Westeros and Essos were connected uh, by the maybe they stowed away in Sea Snake's hold, and then when it <laughs> went to Hard Home, no. <laughs> let's keep going. <laughs> That's good. I also want to point out the uh, like it's your not point out but refer to your your comment about uh, Adam Valerian going to Isle of Faces, which is just kind of odd. Like, why would he go? Like, where did he get the idea to go there in the first place? Uh, so, and I like that drawing the line to that to this and seeing that yeah, there's some at least some Valerian connection to that. You never know. Maybe Corlys told Adam something. Um, yeah, that that actually is a very practical way of looking at it. Like, why did this random Valerian dragon rider or bastard turned Valerian dragon rider think to fly to the friggin' Isle of Faces, which is normally protected by sorcery and fog and shit like that? I mean, it's kind of yeah, crazy. Well, he's like, I know, I'll go to the Isle of Faces. Well, what gave him that idea? <laughs> like, why? Where did that come from? Like, where was the impetus for that? So yeah, maybe yeah. you could picture Corliss. You know, telling stories to his his new his newfound, recognized and legitimized uh, children or grandchildren, Alan and Adam, yeah. and yeah, maybe uh maybe they did hear about the Ephekevron or some of these other magical places like Lang and Ashai, and it at least nurtured a curiosity and a knowledge that magic is real. Perhaps you know he probably wasn't a magic skeptic after all these voyages. No, I wouldn't think so. 
And you wonder too, just referring to the dragon, you know, this is uh, come so much later in his life, but well, he knew about dragons from his travels and his readings and, and everything. And he might know a few things that even the Targaryens had known or, or don't didn't know or had forgotten. Because there is a lot of evidence that the Targaryens didn't carry all their dragon knowledge with them. You know, they didn't have horns anymore, things like that. So, and the way they treated eggs differently, all that. So, uh, yeah, let's move on. We have um, a map for of Nefer, which is uh, another really cool, creepy place. There's a map place. that has Nefer oh, yeah. and, Not you just know, Nefer. the kingdom of Ithacavron on it, obviously. Nefer, home of Neferion, one of the five names for Azor High. Yeah. <laughs> So we have another uh, very cool quote here. All right, so beyond the Ibish coastlands and forests of the Ifekevron, the foothills of the bones rise up out of the grasslands, and farther east the mountains themselves march down to meet the sea. Even from miles out into the shivering sea, the great northern peaks with their icy crowns and jagged spires seem to split the very air. Krasaj Zaska, the Dothraki call the northernmost of the bones, the White Mountains. Beyond them lies another world, one that very few Westerosi has ever visited. Those who have come this far, like Lomas Longstrider, have come by land through the mountain passes or by way of the warm southern waters and the jade gates. Through the eastern waters of the... I'm sorry. Though the eastern waters of the Shivering Sea are as rich as those of the west, few come to fish them save the Ibanes themselves, for beyond the bones are found the lands of the nomadic Jogos Nye, a savage race of mounted warriors with no ships and no interest in the sea. Translation, no interest in money. <laughs> <laughs> Big difference there. <laughs> Whalers from the port of Ibn regularly hunt Leviathan Sound, where those great beasts come to mate and birth their young. And they're talking about whales there. And Ibanese fishermen speak of vast schools of cod in the deeper waters, seals and walrus on the rocky islands to the north, and spider crabs and emperor crabs everywhere. But elsewise, these eastern seas are empty. Yeah, so that's really cool. And you wonder, just if we talk about um, the description of some of these places, that Corlys maybe doesn't have, this is an area where he pro maybe doesn't have any sources to have explained what these places are to him. And I wonder, we're, we're told that he's the first person to visit a lot of these places. I wonder if George is riffing a little bit off of our own history, uh, meaning U.S. history, where we're told that Columbus discovered the Americas, but... That's not really true. Uh, <laughs> no. Excepting the fact that people already lived here. So you don't discover a place people already lived. But Vikings certainly found it well before Columbus did. That's proven beyond a shadow of doubt these days. Um, yes, not even so the certain. first white guy. Yeah, not even the first white people. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you wonder if this little bit of that is, is in place too. There might have been somebody that had come to some of these places well before the sea snake. But because he's so famous and he, his, he wrote everything down and because – He's a powerful guy that his books would have been copied and, and all that. Um, and because he did so much trading and brought back so much wealth and so many other people were with him, more people to spread the story of being with him. Whereas somebody who just went to these places and never wrote it down, like how would anybody even know, you know, um, it wouldn't be caught up in, in history books if, if it was never written down in the first place. So I don't think we're meant to believe that literally he was the first Westerosi to go to some of these places, but rather the first person to record that uh, or that we know of. Well, let's continue with the quote here. Still farther east lie the so-called Thousand Islands, 
Ebony's chart makers tell us that there are, in truth, fewer than 300. A sea-girt scatter of bleak, wind-swept rocks believed by some to be the last remnants of a drowned kingdom, whose towns and towers were submerged beneath the rising seas many thousands of years ago. Only the boldest or the most desperate mariners ever make landfall here, for the people of these islands, though few in number, are a queer folk, inimical to strangers, a hairless people with green-tinged skin who file the teeth of their females into sharp points and slice the foreskins from the members of their males. They speak no known tongue and are said to sacrifice sailors to their squamous, fish-headed gods, likenesses of whom rise from their stony shores, visible only when the tide recedes. Though surrounded by water on all sides, these islanders fear the sea so much that they will not set foot in the water even under threat of death. Probably means they don't ever leave either, for that reason you wouldn't get into a ship. They're even more afraid of the sea than the Dothraki. So um, this is a really aggressive statement against male circumcision by George it Martin. Is, it is <laughs> a aggressive statement, and it also tells me now that I guess I should picture every man in Westeros and Essos in general as being uncircumcised, which probably makes sense, yeah. but I'd never thought about me it. Me neither. So, but you're right. They all, they, why they would all they be are. circumcised? Yeah. <laughs> why, yeah. Why would they? <laughs> That's the real thing we need to be railing against HBO for, against. <laughs> but, you know, all, uh, kidding aside, this, what's going on here is pretty obvious. Um, this is the case of the squishers coming out of the sea and raping the ancestors of these people. And so it leaves them fish like, but also terrified of the sea. And so it's basically a different way. To go, uh, this is just yet more proof that squishers and merlings are real. Um, we find fishy people in a few places. The Iron Islands have their legends about, uh, you know, merlings and squishers. And here mm-hmm. is like one of the best evidences of, <clears throat> you know, the, the sea folk are always coming out of the sea to mate with humans. Sometimes yeah. it's nice. Sometimes it's not nice, but it's a very <laughs> consistent that's, that, part. That's specifically why they file the teeth of their their women. Like maybe they don't realize now that that's where that tradition comes from, but that they might have been doing it specifically to try to turn them- off and like defend against. The <laughs> so we could bite these men that came for them from the sea. Yeah. <laughs> and so they they have gods that look like you know squishers um, that are carved in stone. Uh, but and so you almost wonder if, like in the past, maybe they were more powerful and more connected to their squisher, uh, you know, fathers, and now they're just like terrified of them. But something, something bad and Lovecraftian went on there, as you can see. And uh, yeah, absolutely, super Lovecrafty. This reference, this, this is this is uh, very not even subtle <laughs> how much it is Lovecrafty. Oh, and in fact, um, Cheesecloth is pointing out that the squishers are said to have yeah. sharp, pointy teeth. Mm. So basically, they're 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 filing their teeth so they look like but their like, god, their squisher god. It doesn't make exact sense to me. Like maybe it, with, with the idea that they were specifically changed by the squisher, squishers, you have to say that okay, then now they're completely they're completely embracing it. And like, would they welcome it now if a squisher came? Would they be like? Well, no. It's it's like one of those things where they fear and worship at the same yeah, time, yeah. sort so of. Like, but like, if it was like a squisher came and chose a woman, would they, would they be like, oh, she's so lucky, or would they still be? I you think know, they would be like Craster, more like, okay, take yeah, it, but take, please leave yeah, the rest of us alone. Wondering yeah, about take what the a few of us is. You. <laughs> yeah, that's probably something more like that. You could see them sacrificing to the squishers to keep them appeased or something. The offerings to the sea, very uh, very old school. Instead of to the tree, offer to the sea. 
Squish, squish. <laughs> so there's a lot of creepiness there, and you got to wonder, like, Sea Snake would have had some things to write about these people. Um, and he here's where the quote continues. Uh, I'll read this part. Even Corlys Velaryon dared, dared sail no farther east than the Thousand Islands. This was where the sea snake turned back on his great northern voyage. In truth, there was no reason for him to continue, save for his hunger to learn what lay beyond the next horizon. That seems like reason enough to me. Anyway, even the fish taken from these eastern seas are oddly misshapen with a bitter, unpleasant taste, it is said. Only one port of note is to be found on the shivering sea east of the bones. Nefer, chief city of the kingdom of Nagai, hemmed in by towering chalk cliffs and perpetually shrouded in fog. When seen from the har harbor, Nefer appears to be no more than a small town, but it is said that nine-tenths of the city is beneath the ground. For that reason, travelers call Nefer the secret city. By any name, the city enjoys a sinister reputation as a haunt of necromancers and torturers. Okay, so LML, help me out here. This is something that's kind of confused me a little bit. Maybe you have an answer. Okay, the Nagai, the Jogos Nagai. How does the Jogos Nagai culture end in a city of necromancers and torturers. That to me is a little strange. Well, no, the Nagai is not, is not the Jogos Nai. Okay. That's no a wonder. different, yeah. that's <clears> a <throat> yeah, similar the, naming convention. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it is. So the, the people it's, it, it's a former kingdom called Nefer. Um, that's now shrunken down to one city. And the, the reason why they're shrunken down probably is the Jogos Nai, because the Jogos Nai make war on everybody else around them, mm. um, whether it's uh, Hercoon, which they've already destroyed, essentially, or the Yitish, or anybody else. So <clears throat> that's that's the feeling that I get, is that part of the reason why Nefer is, is a former kingdom is probably due to those warlike Jogos Nai. There's a lot of AI... I mean, even Ashai, Marahai, there's a lot of AI um, suffixes in that area. Yeah, for sure. That's probably why I thought they were more related. <laughs> the, namings, the namings are very similar. Okay, well, that, that's a perfect explanation. And I think the point of George making Nefer all twisted and horrible is because the only, the only reason it's ever important is because it's one of the places that one of the names of Azorahai comes from. And when you look mm -hmm. at all the places that the five Azorahai names come from, you start seeing a lot of dark magic, and it's one of the clues about who Azorahai really was, which is a bad guy. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. So it definitely fits really well. And it's also just really cool. Of course, Nefer, it sounds... Nefarious? It does. No. It does sound nefarious. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. This would have. This is a remnant of something much larger, uh, but there, but less, uh, more of a remnant than what we saw in the Thousand Islands, where it seems like the those people are maybe even devolved from some greater civilization that has long fallen. Whereas this is, there's still some hints of civilization here, even though it's uh, pretty dark. The quote continues. Uh, back to you, Ashea. Back to me. Okay. Beyond the guy are the forests of Masovi, a cold, dark land of shape changers and demon hunters. Be beyond Masovi, a man of what no man of Westeros can truly say. Certain septons have claimed that the world ends east of Masovi, giving I keep wanting to say Masovi, Masovi. I, I didn't settle sure. on that before I said I don't it. Masovi is how I've always said it. Yeah, like I feel like it should be more like the Russian saying. It but sounds I don't like know. yeah, Russian. Yeah. Um, whatever. Giving way to a realm of mists, then a realm of darkness, and finally a realm of storm and chaos, where sea and sky become as one. Sailors and singers and other dreamers. Other dreamers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. prefer to believe that the shivering sea goes on and on, unending, past the easternmost coasts of Essos, 
past islands and continents unknown, uncharted and undreamed of, where strange peoples worship strange gods beneath stranger stars, wiser men suggest that somewhere beyond the waters that we know, east becomes west, and the shivering sea must surely join the sunset sea, if indeed the world is round. It may be so, or not. Until some new sea snake arises to sail beyond the sunrise, no man can know for certain. That's really cool. There's a little I am no man going on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, I almost made a comment on that. I was like, woman. <laughs> so any thoughts on Masovi or any of those spots? Uh, that's This is, again, this is his third voyage of only of nine voyages to Essa. So he's gone all this way on only his third voyage. Mm. So cool. Yeah, so I think he hit the end of profitability. Let's put it that way. Like, after a certain... <laughs> I mean, it's a long way. When you look at that map along the north there, it's a long way to the Thousand Islands. So at a certain point, you're like, well, do you want to keep going? Like, I don't know. The last places that we've been to haven't been that great. I think it's maybe time to go home now. So (laughs) after that, he sailed. (laughs) Right. And then he started trying the Summer Sea and the Jade Sea, and that's where he really hit it big. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, He just exhausted this sort of line of exploration. Uh, but it is, um, I got to go in about five minutes, Aziz. One thing we wanted to keep you around, uh, wanted to make sure we got to hear from you on, is, is this guessing portion of There's the episode. Oh, look, we have Koja on screen, the very oh, rare appearance of Koja. Cat. Oh, that didn't last. No, she wanted <laughs> attention, but not to be on camera. She's a Summer Islander kitty, so we had to try to get Koja her Koja Mew, anyways, had to try. So, voyages four through eight. My guess is that some of them were repeat voyages to just get more wealth the same way he got tons of wealth the first time but there's a lot of places that he didn't go that he might have gone that we could dream on uh we mentioned Sithorios. <laughs> we mentioned Sithorios, the west coast of Sithorios or the east coast of Sithorios, basilisk isles there's no mention like you said earlier there's no mention of him going there and we can see why he would avoid it because it's deadly but maybe he did Ulthos. we got a map of Ulthos right here we don't know of anyone ever going there, but it's right there near Ashai. And if he went to Ashai, maybe he went to Ulthos. However, it is explicitly stated that the sea snake never went as far as the Saffron Straits. So that definitely casts a shadow, a strong shadow on that theory. Now, Ulthos is kind of lined up with Ashai, so he could have gone there without going to the Saffron Straits, but it looks like a no. What do you think, LML? Any, uh, any thoughts on that? Those those trees look dark and scary. They really do. Something up with those trees. It's a darker jungle than anywhere else on the map. I I know. I just think here we see the difference between him and Alyssa Farman. Alyssa Farman's always trying to go further, go further, go further. And Sea Snake is like counting his money at a certain point. He's like, yeah, let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> And Slaver's Bay would be another possibility for a place he might have gone. We've got a map shot of that as well, but... Maybe he didn't bother because uh, the slave trade is – there's not as much money in the slave trade as there is in in these regular trade goods, um, setting aside the obvious ethical considerations. But, um, yeah, it's just – I don't think there's as much money in that. And slavery is not legal in Westeros anyway. So he would have to be selling slaves from slave city to slave city. What's that? What year was it made illegal? I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess it was it. along with the Andals. I mean, it was probably... Yeah, I guess so. You know? Yeah, I guess you're right. They were escaping specifically like, we don't want to be part of this slavery. Yeah, um, so I guess it's just been kind of always... They've always yeah. been against it and just yeah, always been so. sort of taboo. 
Uh, maybe not illegal, but ta- now it's illegal. Yeah, but before yeah, it was just taboo. Yeah, you would have pictured when they had all these hundreds of you know kingdoms and stuff like that. that yeah. Some people would be like, I'm having slaves. I don't care. I was never a slave. I don't have any reason not to have them. Yeah. yeah Other places he could have gone uh, besides Slaver's Bay. The other side of Westeros, you know, par- a parallel ice wolf attempt on the other side of the, the cold area. But there's no indication he did that since we here only did two voyages on the ice wolf. So it's kind of unlikely he tried to find a north a different passage on the other side of the continent using the sea snake and not the ice wolf. Uh, north of Ib, what's up there? Um, south of the Summer Isles, what's down there? Uh, Nath, he would know that Nath isn't a place you can stay very long, but maybe he, you know, given he was well-read, he could maybe know that you could stop there for a minute and get out before the butterflies get you. But that might be too risky. <laughs> um, any other places? Is there anything we didn't name as far as places you could go that we weren't able to... No, I think we've already we've I mean, already explained it. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I don't think he has much reason to go very inland, you know. Yeah. All things no, considered. Hmm. Sorry, Shea. And he's also got no reason to go anywhere where he doesn't know where there's going to be something on the other end. Like, he's not going to go striking out south of the Summer Isles, because why do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He could die. Like, yeah. he's... <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't, no, I don't he's not into taking those there. risks. He's not going to Sothorios. Yeah, I don't see a reason for him to go to Norvos or, you know. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, he's going to places where he thinks he, he can make money uh, or where the Starry Wisdom cult wants him to go. Uh, a couple of... <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> the hidden hand is guiding him, right? Uh, super chats from Holly Waldron. Uh, one of two. Based on your episode about the Great Empire of the Dawn and House Dane connection, do you all think Danny's mom could be a Shara with Brandon? And part two, John thinks he's a bastard Stark, but is actually a true Targaryen, and Danny thinks she's a true Targaryen, but is actually a bastard Stark. Yeah, I mean that the symmetry there is pretty cool, but I, the timelines do not support this this possibility at all. Um, um and the looks, to be honest with you, um, Ashara Dane mixed with Brandon Stark does not Daenerys Targaryen make, realistically speaking. Like I mean, maybe no silver in, hair there. Maybe like in our genetics, you could. It's maybe probably like George doesn't write it like that, yeah. really. So. And it's still unlikely, yeah, in general, uh, uh, yeah, dark hair plus dark hair, even with one of them having violet eyes, is is a problem. And we've been shown too many times that the dark hair overrides the, the fair looks. Yeah. But so I think that's the, the, the one of the biggest issues, yeah. to be honest. So I'd have to say it's a cool idea, but no, I don't think so. I, think it's, I don't think it's supported. Um, so yeah, so Elmo has to go in a second. Let's finish this last voyage, and then we'll we'll say goodbye to you. And then after you, I go, actually have to go right, right now. now. Okay, let's say okay. do your do your uh, tell everyone where to find you, and we'll catch you next time. Uh, well, LuciferMeansLightbringer.com, LuciferMeansLightbringer website, and find me on Sundays at three Eastern doing the pregame live stream. We're going to do our first pregame live stream this week, week early. Uh, get all the Mythhead predictions set up for the season, and then we'll be there. You know, uh, premiere day. 3 Eastern, and then we'll also be doing the post-game after the show. So great, come check it out. Make sure you're subscribed to my YouTube channel. When I checked earlier today, I was just a couple of subscribers away from 11,111. <laughs> uh, so you could be the lucky 11111 subscriber. <laughs> one, one, uh, one one's older brother. One one and Woondag, Woondar, Woondag, Woond, Woondar, Woond. Cool. So that's right. it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah I'm at 11.109. So. Cool. All right, there everybody, help him get there. And uh, thanks for coming. Great insights. And we will talk to you during Game of Thrones season. Peace. Bye. All right. 
Okay, yeah, we're not done here. We've got uh, several more things to discuss. We have the ninth voyage, and we also have his settling down. We have some a little bit of, of, of stuff written about his, his when he's done with his uh, voyage, voyages, and that includes some more artwork. So we're definitely going to get to that. Mm-hmm. So his ninth voyage, like I said, with the fourth through eighth voyages, all we have is his guesswork that we've just been through. And uh, the ninth voyages was another trip to Karth. 20 ships loaded with gold, Karth, Buying spices, elephants, silk. Six of the ships didn't make it. The elephants died, but still vastly wealthy from the venture. My headcanon here is this is why Oakenface made a, made a big deal out of... <laughs> and the elephant, don't forget the elephant, because <laughs> his uh, father slash grandfather uh, was unable to bring elephants that he planned to bring. I wonder what his plans were with those elephants. Was he going to use them as... Weapons of war or... He's going to build his own palace of ivory. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that is... he. It's in his own words that it was actually a palace of ivory, so it sounds like it's not an exaggeration, but damn, uh-huh. it's like a palace of ivory. Well, yeah, you can see on the screen this art from Drafterji that shows the elephants being loaded onto the, the ships. So obviously, they didn't make it. But then you can see Corlys on his uh, driftwood crown. I will not say driftwood clown, as Aziz has said in the past. <laughs> you mean driftwood throne? Yes. <laughs> yes, right. I have the driftwood clown. See, I was, just, I was just thinking about it as I was saying it. I was like, all I could think about was when you said driftwood clown. I was like, I'm not going to say it. And then I was, of course. <laughs> so he took yes. uh, a substantial amount of this money and built himself a new castle, which, of course, is not a cheap thing to do. And he didn't exactly go about, uh, go about it using uh, budget construction materials either. Uh, so, Ashea, mm-hmm. please read this one for us. Oh, all right. The seat of House Valerian was Castle Driftmark, a dark, grim place, always damp and often flooded. Lord Corlys raised a new castle on the far side of the island. High Tide was built of the same pale stone as the Eyrie, its slender towers crowned with roofs of beaten silver that flashed in the sun. When the morning and evening tides rolled in, the castle was surrounded by the sea, connected to Driftmark proper only by a causeway. So it sounds a little bit like a combination of with the Eyrie marble. It's like the Eyrie combined with River Run. Yeah. With a silver roof? Yeah. Come it on. sounds like it was blinding <laughs> to look at out in the day, like, yeah, like the, 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 the sea and the, the reflected s- of the silver. I just be like, ah. You may not have thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, Don't polish the enemies roof. can never attack when it's sunny. <laughs> it is blind them yet. <laughs> um, to this new castle, Lord Corlys moved the ancient driftwood throne, a gift from the Merlin King, according to legend. The sea snake built ships as well. The royal fleet tripled in size during the years he served the old king as master of ships. Even after giving up that office, he continued to build, turning out merchantmen and trading galleys in place of warships. Beneath the dark, salt-stained walls of Castle Driftmark, three modest fishing villages grew together into a thriving town called Hull for the rows of ship hulls that could always be seen below the castle. Along the island, near high tide, another village was transformed into Spice Town, its wharves and piers crowded with ships from the free cities and beyond. Sitting athwart the gullet, Driftmark was closer to the narrow sea than Duskendale or King's Landing, so Spice Town soon began to usurp much of the shipping that would elsewise have made for those ports, and House Valerian grew ever richer and more powerful. Yes, this is what we were talking about earlier with him... Uh, the trickle-down stuff and him building his island really big and creating opportunities for a lot of people. And uh, 
just beginning more and more wealthy by making all the right moves. And uh, you you got to figure some Adam, uh, there was some animosity maybe from some of these other spots that were losing out on business because uh, this, the, the ascendancy of House Valarian, who were somewhat upstarts to the area. You know, like some of these houses have been in place for thousands of years and the Valarians maybe are they're, they're an ancient family, but not ancient in this area because obviously they migrated from Valyria. Uh, the Driftwood Throne, really cool, um, evocative image there. I'm glad we got that included mm-hmm. in Draftergy's art. Very good shot there. Um, Mm-hmm. And the city, the, the town of Hull, named for its rows of ships always being built, and then the name of Spice Town, that is also very straightforward. A <laughs> town where there's a lot of spices being traded, which makes sense. That would make it really rich, given what we discussed about how expensive spices are. And if Corlys had arranged trade routes for some of these places he went, then the spice would flow. Hey, it's, it's a Dune reference. Spice <laughs> must flow. So we have um, part of his settling down is marrying Rhaenys in AC 90. Yeah, you which, can see this art again. Yeah. Now, we know he was an ambitious guy. So this marriage had definitely some things uh, beyond just uh, marrying this awesome Targaryen princess. There's more to it than that. She insisted on arriving to their marriage, to their wedding on Maelys, the Red Queen. That is a... That's pretty badass. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you may have ships and fleets and wealth, but you don't have this. <laughs> We're not starting off our, uh, our, our, our marriage on unequal footing. And she gets pregnant in, in 92, and Aemon dies. That's the heir to the throne, dying in 92. And Rhaenys is passed over for Balon. And this is when, in that quote, it's referenced that, that Corlys uh, left the office of Master of Ships. Yeah, because they're is fools. Why. They're damn fools. Damn to fools. Have, you could have Rhaenys and Corlys Valerian as king and queen. Like, all this civil unrest, just hardly anything. A big part of our Dance yeah. of the Dragons coverage is talking about what a big mistake this was. Because, yeah, you don't, as we just, just went, took great lengths to show y'all, the sea snake was incredibly powerful. And by Jaehaerys passing over Rhaenys, he pissed off the sea snake. And that oh. that would have a huge ripple effect, not just on the sea snake, but on the, other factions. The House Valerian in general, yeah. for sure. Set up, he, Jaehaerys, great king, but he did a lot to set up the Dance of the Dragons. His descendants didn't just put the hit the accelerator on that, but <laughs> but he did start it. Um, so, and then Lena is the one who was born of that, of, uh, that first child born of Corlys and Rhaenys, and she, she was passed over as well. And Lenor was born, and he was passed over. So again, that's kind of outside the scope of this episode, but I just wanted to throw it out there so we know, uh, just to kind of set the table for for our dance coverage. Let's talk a little bit more about High Tide. We've got this awesome shot yeah. of it. So cool looking. You can really get the uh, the sense of what I meant when I said it's a bit like River Run. When the tide comes in, it's uh, cut off from the mainland except for a narrow causeway, which would make it super, super hard to assault. Mm-hmm. However, I like the little yeah. detail of Melis, you assume, up, up up there flying. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, little, little dragon touch is nice. We don't know exactly when it was built, but it was prior to 106. That's We know that much because it was there. It existed in 106. So it had to have been built before that. Uh, that slender, that quote about slender towers crowned with roofs of shining silver. I know I already commented on that, <sighs> but damn, that is so baller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and you can also see a map shot just so you can see the location of Driftmark in relation to Dragonstone and yeah. whatnot. And another factor in him building High Tide was that the 
ancestral seat built prior uh, when the Valerians first came to Driftmark was, quote, damp and crowded. And you hear that in a few other castles, that someone made a new castle because the other one was damp. And uh, that causes, like, health issues. I believe uh, the Harlaws did the same thing, if I remember correctly. So the, one of the purposes of, the, of this place was not only house the Driftwood Throne, but to house all these other treasures that he accumulated. It was almost like a, like a safe. <laughs> like a, you know, he needed a better vault to hold all his insane wealth. As we talked earlier, all these people coming to migrate there, all these villages building up, this was a source of manpower. And, well, thorough art is thorough. Drafter G has given us an art of Valerian soldiers, and I love the detail here. You got the spear, you got the shield, you got some of the sigil in there. Cool kind of scaledish, I yeah. don't know, uh, armor the top you know i don't know it's it's not a little nautical looking like yeah the spears and all light armor yeah light armor very it was very very a good take on how i think it would look because it's that's very true you don't only weirdos like victorian wear heavy armor on ships <laughs> most of them are like davos who wear light armor and the only heavy thing is their helmet which they can just pop right off if they fall in the water so he's lord of those guys now those are his men and uh, he wants to have lots of them well since we're not covering his politics and his his time as a politician and leader and general and all that, this is about where the coverage ends because once he's built his castle, once he's established himself, once he's got his princess, his queen who never was, a dragon, a son riding a dragon, his, his life is a much, much different thing. So that's why we're covering it separately. So this is where we're going to end things today. But I do want to throw to, I do have a list of, of, uh, a summary of his life that includes some things during this political war era of his latter life, just to give a nice summary of how amazing he was. Okay. Married a dragon rider. He's the first Valerian to have a Valerian son ride a dragon because before it was Targaryens, right? He was, he crowned a king of the Stepstones. That's Daemon Targaryen. And he poisoned another, Aegon II. The following titles of, were all his. Sir, Lord of the Tides, Lord Regent, Hand of the Queen, Master of Ships, Master of Driftmark, Blacks and the Greens, Valerian, and Valerian. So he fought for both the Blacks and the Greens and the Valerian, and he was Valerian. But he wasn't a guy that just switched sides due to opportunism. Mm -hmm. He was always focused on peace. So his name, Sea Snake, is a bit misleading. Um, and he differs from some of those. We, we talked a lot about in this episode how he differs from a lot of the other explorer types like Lomas and and uh, even his own grandson slash son, Alan. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just want to remind you all of that, that he's very different. And eventually Rainey's marries back into her grandmother's family, which is, you know, kind of comes full circle with that all uh, – hmm. <laughs> with that whole thing because when she's marrying into – when she marries Coralise, well, Coralise is related to uh, other people that she's related to. So it's, you know, more of this everyone's related business. We have um, a note from a Mr. Begavita, who is the real-life parallel to Coralise. I don't know. I think we want to ask that of our listeners. Comment yeah, if you guys have a... Let us know who you think. Yeah, if you have a suggestion. Yeah, definitely, like Ashea said, let us know. Um, there's definitely some interesting explorer figures who have maybe parts of him. Uh... But I don't know one that's a great one-to-one -one relationship. So that's something for y'all to maybe hit us with if you have one. If, you, if, if anyone gets us a good one, then we will let y'all know. And we will post that in a later episode. 
So let us do our thanks and outro. Thank you, everybody, for coming. It's uh, sorry we couldn't get this done last week, but uh, we will be off next week. That's right. But we will have a live stream that Saturday, that Saturday the thirteenth, and I think you said two p.m. Eastern. Right? That's right, two p.m. Eastern, which and would so be we'll post six the GMT event for that seven. pretty soon because we don't have a stream before then. Yep, seven GMT. Now there's there is a chance we do another stream before that, and that will be if there's another trailer. We got some new teasers, but that's not really enough to do a full episode on. But if there's a full new trailer or a substantial amount of new footage, we will do an episode prior to Saturday the 13th. But otherwise, that's our next live stream, Saturday the 13th. And we're, then we're full in Game of Thrones mode for six weeks. And uh, then we'll let you all know what comes after that. So let's say thanks to a few people. Do our patron shout-outs. Thanks uh, to Shea, of course. Thanks to yeah. Michael Clarfeld. Thanks big, to DraftRG. Big thanks to DraftRG. Yes, as we said, go follow him on Twitter and Instagram, at DraftRG. And uh, we hope to get more art from him in the future. And we will certainly be linking to um, his online store so you can buy a print. I know I sure want a print of that. Yeah, I, uh, I do too. And we will certainly be spreading the word as we get more information and help uh, let y'all find... Uh, this whenever wherever it can be found okay um, and also thanks to LML for being a part of this episode um, very helpful no, screw him he yes. left early <laughs> <laughs> that's why we wanted to get we wanted to have him leave so we could make fun of him once he left <laughs> okay thanks to our other patrons thanks to Lard Mark of House Joseph the Snow and Winterfell writer of Maslow Cartho the white dragon with green scales horns wings and talons Jinx of House Lear is Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of a woods witch, rider of Eurogenia, a sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. The mysterious BR is Hand of the King. The smiling wolf is Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower, soldier, scholar, philosopher, diplomat, hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best. Mm-hmm. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog is Warden of the West. Another person that will be seeing at Ice and Fire Con. Mm. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Kabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods, and Warden of the North. I believe that's another person we'll be seeing at Ice and Fire. Oh, yeah, he goes to a lot of those. Yeah. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills of Crescent Springs, is Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by Flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet led by Flagship Prince Damon. We also have a new King Beyond the Wall. He was one of our lords, but he has set aside his seat. Formerly known as uh, Lord Sidney Jesse the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring. He has now become the king beyond the wall. And he has uh, celebrated his ascendancy over the free folk by having himself forged a blade of pure dragonglass that is as sharp as it sounds. And you do not want to face him with that. Also, thanks to our small council, the Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian is Master of Ships, Grand Maester Via James, Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood is Master of Laws, Lord Fabian Flowers is the Bastard of Greenshield, Master of Coin, and Lord Johan of House Orcos is called Shadowhawk, Master of Whisperers. Our lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Diarliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges, Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadford. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. 
Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lord of the Halls of Castle Kilcrest is wielder of the Valyrian steel machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Donhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual wielder of the Valyrian Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Wise, sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood, Laminated Longbow, Todd Von Oben. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, Last Scion of Clan Macaulay, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, Sword of House Iron Werewood, Listen for the Silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian, and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass, Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Harrenhal. Nevesta the Twin-Hearted is a suspected skin-changer and holder of Castle Carahel. Sir Valentin of House of Jen is creator of the free Game of Thrones predictions, a futures market. Uh, Lady Liana Kelly is of Wolf Island and protectors of the Steelhold. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Kay of House Archer is Lady of Earthdog Hall, Huntress of the Wolfswood and Guardian of Maddie Squirrel's Bane, the Mighty Direweenie. Lady Raywin of House Dillsdane is the Star Spear. And Peter Rivers, the Pale Dragon, is heir to Bloodraven. Also, thanks to King's Justice, Sir Troy, the steady wielder of the Valyrian steel blade, Fate. And thanks to the Queen's High Council, led by, uh, well, not led, uh, <laughs> with Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers, Rebea, Star Eyes, Lady of Waves, and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the shadows, we bear our claws. Laura of House Brondos is Master of Coin. Grand Maester and Elizabeth, middle daughter of Liana Mormont, first lady to forge both the silver and Valyrian steel link, and Dennis of Lazar, Embar Persis, former head of the cell sale company, the Fiery Shepherds, master of laws. Yeah, the Embar Persis is high Valyrian for fire of the sea. Uh-huh. Pretty cool. I like that, that name a cool. lot. Uh, our King's Guard is led by Lord Commander Miriam R, and backed up by Sir Dolores D, longest tenured white sword. Willa Crowsbane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk. Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star. Sir Jord of House Pepsi, called the Beverage Knight. <laughs> Gregor Snow, called Snow Bear, a bastard of Winterfell. Jord of House Pepsi, better not come to Atlanta. Yeah, this is Coke country. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander Hama Helmet, the Sellsword Sentinel. It has Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North, Michonne the Melodious, Star of Old Town, Minds Over Masters, Ser Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood, Ser Leon of House Walker, Wielder of the Twin Valyrian Steel Blades, Fire and Ice, and the Werewood Bow, Rain, and last but not least, Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squish. <laughs> Lord Commander George the Golden leads the Beard Guard, backed up by Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Copper Main, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the Multifaceted Beard, Beard, Beard of Platinum, Red and Brown, Stay Frosty, Sir Tim Corgile is Mad Boy of the Western Desert, and Queen Helena von Lanstein is partying like it's 1999 since 1980-something. A kingdom for a drink. And finally, our History of Westeros and Night's Watch is led by... Lord Commander Benjamin Umber, the Silent Giant, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Winter's Kiss. And he is backed up by First Builder Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow. <laughs> Not a Yeah, it's very cool. First Steward... Very Sir- cool. <laughs> I didn't even mean to do that. I pun in my sleep, apparently. You're First- awake. Mm, whoa, I am awake. First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine, called Pale Wind. And First Ranger Sir Sorstelica of House Gramercy. 
Nice uh, audio file reference there. Okay, everybody, thanks again. Thanks to Michael Clarfeld again. Thanks to DraftRG again. Thanks to LML again. And we will see thanks you guys. Thanks to Aziz for the first time ever. <laughs> thanks to me? Okay. Thanks to HP uh, Lovecraft and Pod City and all of y'all who came to watch and or listen today. We will see you next time. Well, our re-read us. 